0: Welcome to Oscar Podcast, episode number 46, which I can't believe we're at episode number 46, but we are. I'm here with Greg Kennedy from livingincinema.com and Ryan Adams and me from awardsdaily.com and special guest, Michael Gray, my old friend of 30 years who knows everything about the Oscars. And actually has recently downloaded a very cool Oscars app on his iPhone, which isn't by the Academy. It's some other thing where you can actually just open up an app and find out any detail about the Academy Awards that you Mm -hmm. want. Right, Michael? Yeah. I love that thing. Pretty cool. I know it's very cool.
1: We'll have to find out what that is, and we'll link to it on, when we post the uh, podcast, we'll, so yeah. people know where to find it.
0: We did a couple of different things this this week. I, um, somebody actually called in when I wrote a Oscar podcast preview and left us a message, which we'll play when we get to it. It's about the Age of Innocence, and mm-hmm. we asked people for some questions, um, which I. I forgot to look at in the comment section <laughs> we got one
1: question on twitter that i'll that if we have time i'll bring it up
0: okay great so those are the couple we're gonna we're hoping to incorporate more phone calls if anybody wants to call in with comments that will play on our podcast if you'd like um, so this was 1993 the year that steven spielberg's masterpiece i think you have to call it a masterpiece schindler's list won best picture handily it had no competition and it won seven out of 12 Oscars for Mr. Spielberg. And um, the Best Picture nominees were The Fugitive, In the Name of the Father, The Piano, and The Remains of the Day. And um, they're all really good movies, but they can't touch Schindler's List. The only one that mildly comes close would be The Piano, I think, the Jane Campion movie. It doesn't can't even touch Schindler's List, but it's just such a perfect film that it's worth talking about. And Tom Hanks won his... Second Oscar,
2: it's
0: first. First, okay, because Forrest Gump's yeah. number two. Okay, second Oscar mm-hmm. with our first Oscar with Philadelphia. Um, he beat Daniel Day Lewis. Holly Hunter won for the piano. Tommy Lee Jones won for the Fugitive and Supporting, and Anna Paquin won for the piano.
1: Which shows the strength of the piano It shows really how how well loved the piano was. It probably was probably the the had the, probably the most emotional impact um, next to Schindler's List. Uh, probably affected people more emotionally than probably any other movie that year. This is the thing that the Academy really can do really well. If you give them one or two fantastic movies, um, a, a, do, a dozen, you know, second-tier movies. Then they, then they can almost always get it right. If they, if you give them too many mediocre movies, they, they don't know what to do. And if you give them too many great movies, they don't know what to do. Like, if, like in, like the year they had um, a network and all the president's men and everything, they chose Rocky because you know mm-hmm. there's a, too, too much greatness and all the votes split in too many different directions. But when there's really just one pinnacle that is so far above everything, everything else, like Schindler's List, then they can, then they, then they do well.
0: And Spielberg had the number one movie at the box office that year also, which was Jurassic Park, which made a whole shitload of money. And so he had Best Picture and a f- his other film at the top of the box office. I don't know if anybody else has ever done that. As it turned out, Schindler's List came in number four uh, on wow. the year's box office. I know, number four. He always makes money, Spielberg. Mm-hmm. And the Jurassic
1: future- Park, I think, made clo- I think it was the first movie to make a billion dollars or maybe... How much did it make? I'm not looking at the figures. Was it 880 million or something? But it was number Worldwide. one at the box office until Titanic. Right. It was the it was the, it was the highest grossing movie of all time until Titanic came along.
0: Yeah, some other movies that did well at the box office: uh, The Firm, um, Indecent Proposal, Oof, Sleepless in Seattle, um, Pelican Brief, um, Free Willy, Last Action Hero, and. Um, In the Line of Fire, which did kind of creep into the Oscar race. um, Not as much as it should have, I don't think, but it did creep in. Um, But I guess we should start off with the piano. Okay. Which Michael and I just watched today, which I hadn't seen, I don't think, since it came out.
3: Do what you like. Play what you like. want to lie together without clothes on how many would that be yes 10 keys
4: That surprises me for some reason.
0: I know, doesn't it? I, I always yeah. felt that it was too intense to revisit.
4: That's exactly why I haven't. But for some reason, because I, I, I know you're a fan of Jane Campion, so I thought you would have been all over it.
0: I was really, I mean, I love, I hope that women my age who are listening to this podcast, if there are any women, um, or men, I suppose, but if you saw it when you were young and now you're old and you go back and look at it, I, I think you'll be kind of freaked out by how great it is. Um, just as a, just she, she's fearless as a filmmaker A lot of women, I think, one of the problems As filmmakers is that they're afraid um, To go in certain directions To be gross, but here's a wonderful Example of something Jane Campion Does, a couple of things That make you sexually uncomfortable in that movie First of all, I have to say at the start That I tweeted this, but It has to be one of the most erotic films I've ever seen There's a shot that only a woman Could film a shot of Harvey Keitel Taking off all his clothes Okay, Harvey Keitel, <laughs> who you'd never think of as this erotic thing, and yet he emerges as this erotic thing in this movie under her direction. So he's totally stark naked, full frontal nudity, and he's cleaning her piano. <laughs> That's <laughs> like he's walking
1: around and lovingly cleaning her piano. It's an animal, it's an animal sexuality yeah. that he has. It's a raw that he has. It's not like... It's not handsome, charming sexuality. Not in any way. He's yeah. really like and it's like, not
0: a, like the woman's what what you'd think of what Hollywood has taught us to think of as a woman's fantasy of of, a ma- of male sexuality. It's not that. It's it's animalistic. It's a mm-hmm. different thing. But anyway, so very earthy. Definitely. Earthy. Yeah. There you right. go. At mm-hmm. one point, um, um, Sam Neill, who plays. Uh, um, Ada, who's played by Holly Hunter's husband who, He, you know, he f- kind of forces her to marry him She can't touch him, she doesn't want to be near him He's spying on her you know, Having sex for the first time With, with, with um, Harvey Keitel And and Harvey Keitel's lifting her skirt, right? And he's underneath her skirt, between her legs, with his face. And and Sam kneels outside, and this dog starts licking his palm. (laughs) It's just (laughs) like he looks down, and there's like a dog licking his palm. At the same time, he's watching this, like, you know, maybe oral sex scene. And he, like, wipes it off, you know, and he keeps watching. It's just so disturbing and strange, you know, that she would do that. I mean, this is so clever to me and brilliant. And it's just all through that movie. There's these tiny moments like that, just spectacularly beautiful and weirdly insightful and awkward and weird. You know, it's just weird. It's very strange. It's 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 almost it's almost gothic in
1: in, in its strangeness. It's like a, it's it has it's almost horrible in some ways. You know, it is of course horrible at the end.
0: Yeah, yeah, horrible mm-hmm. in a way, but it has. I was surprised to see that it has a wonderful ending.
1: Oh, the very end, yeah. Of course, the yeah. way that it redeems itself at the end, but I mean just before the ending, right? Just before the final ending, But it turns into just a nightmare.
0: Yeah, and, and Michael and I were talking about how Holly Hunter went one, and I was thinking like, oh God, it's the Perfect Academy. Part because we as we were talking about with um, Marley Matlin, you know she doesn't say anything and, and she like fucks all through.
1: She's <laughs> <just> the perfect
0: <laughs> best actress winner. But no, it's also funny that, that Holly Hunter won for a part where she isn't talking since she's such a talker in so many of her mm-hmm. parts. You know, and her voice is so distinctive. Yet here she was not talking. There's a, there's a little bit of a voiceover by her, but her whole performance is silent. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty incredible. You know, you know, it's hard to imagine that she won. Who was the big one that she beat, Michael, the big performance?
2: Was well, um, um, what's her name from the movie What's Love? Got to oh, do yeah, with Angela Bassett. Angela Bassett. Angela because Bassett, yeah. everybody thought she would win. Right. She. I think at the time she was the on-hand favorite, even though Holly Hunter was winning every award known to man, you know, because right. she won, I think, the con. And she then, after the Cannes, she won every other award. But as a bastard, cause I guess maybe because she was black and the black actress hasn't won yet, I think she was the um, the front runner at that
0: time. Yeah, and I have to say, speaking of Cannes, the um, the movie that she had brought there before, which was Sweetie, apparently got booed, which is a, which is a scandal. I mean, you should never trust Cannes if they booed Sweetie. That's all I gotta mm-hmm. say. Cause Sweetie's a great movie. It's weird, but it's great. They gave the piano an eight minute standing ovation. Something like that, like a really long, extended standing ovation. Of course, it won the Palm, you know. So it was it was a pretty big deal, starting at the early of the year, and it, it really carried on through. Um, but nothing was going to stop Schindler's List.
2: You know, the piano is basically a foreign film if you think about it, because it was directed by a foreign director. It was filmed in a foreign country. Most of the actors were foreign, except for Holly Hunter and Harvey. So it was. That's a really good.
1: Sorry, that's a really, really good point. It doesn't even feel like a Hollywood movie, or American movie no. in any way. Now, the, sens- the sensibility is totally a uh, 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 foreign language film,
2: right? And that could have been the hindrance of it not winning that picture, even though Schindler's is, is, is by far a great film, and I think it's the only film to, I think, win every major award ever. I think I think about that film, but with the piano, it's just. A film that I, I don't think anybody expected it to do as well for a film that cost $7 million to make. I think it grossed by close to $50 million. And that, um, that was a big surprise in Hollywood. I don't think anyone expected that.
0: I know, and for her to get Best Director nomination and Best Picture nomination for that was a pretty big deal at the time. Um, Although you didn't hear a lot about female film director making history kind of stuff, I don't recall. It was just sort of like, this is the movie that everybody liked. It's kind of like what every female um, director dreams of being the scenario where they're not making a big deal out of the fact that you're a woman. They just, you're there because your movie is great. But interestingly, the piano totally turns on her internal world, but it doesn't give easy answers. For instance, I was surprised, and Michael was surprised, by how the kid Anna Paquin, who's great by the way, <laughs> um, mm. how sad she is. You know, I don't think I noticed before. Kind of her. You know, I, I always thought it was about um, how was about Holly Hunter's character, and it is. It's it's really about her and her her art versus her love versus her desire. You know, all of that versus just being herself. Um, but the kids totally cast aside. You know, in that scenario, she's she's mm-hmm. cast aside. She doesn't really have anyone particularly looking out for her. She's sort of drifting, and she's watching this thing go down with her mom. You know, it's an interesting... So to speak. So to speak. <laughs> it's, you know, it's not like it's Pat. You know what I mean? It's not good, bad mother. It's sort of weird gray area, you know.
1: Right, she, she she was dragged along on this trip, and she doesn't even get any of the benefits. Not as if Holly Hunter got a whole lot of benefit, but she did get the one really really big benefit, you know, yeah. because she. But but the kid gets nothing, you know, right. out of being dragged along to this this swampy, uh, wet, muddy wilderness, you know. wanted me
5: to give this to Mister Baines. I thought maybe it was not the proper thing to do. Shall I open it?
2: No, give it
6: to me. <laughs> Five
3: you? I trusted you! I trusted you! Why, you make me hurt
6: you! Make me hurt you! You made me angry!
3: Mr. Bades. Tell him if he ever tries to see her again, I'll take off another,
0: and another, and another.
6: Push.
5: Quick, keep
6: it. Oh, try to fight. Try to fight, to crush his skull. No! No!
0: No! And she out! To, an to her. Mother. That fails her. She tries to then um, have an allegiance with um, with with Sam Neill and that fails her you know because the mother gets punished horribly um, and then there 's this piano which serves as the set piece or centerpiece of the movie, which you know the the first husband won 't take it because it 's too heavy, so you know but then Harvey Keitel gets it and he brings it and she starts playing it for him and God, I mean, and then then in the end, when they have to get rid of the piano because it 's too heavy. And she mm-hmm. just decides to just give it up. You know, it's so symbolic. And, and to, to, for someone to have made a whole movie about...
1: Because that's her soul. It's symbolic of her soul, really. The, the, and the, the thing that gives her, the thing that she lives for, the thing that, that really, ha- uh, that the, the only thing that she had to live for, probably, that, that gave her um, a light in her life that she was unable to achieve because of her disabilities and everything.
0: But she realized when she went off with Harvey Keitel, she didn't need an object for that anymore. And the object... Mm-hmm self could go everything she had inside her she was taking with her Mm. you know that was the beautiful thing about it they were doing all this stuff just to keep the piano you know he's like no she needs it you know she needs this piano and and it won't they're either going to all die because the boat's going to sink just trying to carry this piano or she's going to say you know what it doesn't matter because i have what i need right here and she does Mm -hmm. and she gets you know she can get another piano and she can play it and uh It's just a beautiful movie. It's really, really something else. Definitely worth seeing.
1: I will say about the, the, the Cannes Prize, it, um, the piano tied with Farewell, My Concubine for, for oh, yeah. the Palme d'Or that year. So there were, there was a, they, both, they, were, they were both so popular, that they both, they both shared the palm that year. And I would say Schindler's List and Farewell, My Concubine and the piano are the three pinnacles, undeniable pinnacles of 1993. Just incredible. And it was also interesting, probably really the first year that Chinese cinema um, became an international force, I would say. Not wow. only with um, Farewell My Concubine, but uh, it was also the first year that, that Ang Lee um, gained international recognition with a Wedding Banquet.
0: Oh, no kidding. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Or Ang Lee. Ang Lee, Ang Lee. We're Somebody entering the era of Ang Lee. Pronounce. How cool. Yeah.
0: yeah. Well, so a couple other movies that I didn't mention before that I should say really fast before we move on, which was um, uh, sort of made a big deal back then, was True Romance. You know, Patricia Arquette. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a... Um,
1: Tarantino wrote that.
0: Tarantino wrote it Yep mm-hmm. And uh, three colors bl- You know Blue, white And What is it? Blue, white, and red Is it? Red. Mm-hmm. Blue, white, right. and red Blue, white, right Yeah That that also came out In 93 How incredible is that? Um, and There was one more That I wanted to say Usually Craig will pop in And say Oh, you forgot Do you in- mean a movie That was overlooked By the Academy? Insert Coen Brothers movie here <laughs> <That's> <laughs> Right like The movie I forgot Oh, Groundhog Day Groundhog Day was is a pretty big movie, and and that happened in '93.
1: A movie that you would think, when you first see it, it, it it's, it's a lighthearted comedy, but it has so much depth. You can watch that movie again and again and again. It's a really philosophically deep movie. You know, yeah. aside from just being a blast and a lot of fun and hilarious, it has a lot of deep meaning to it. You know, it's yeah. really it's really uh, aged well. I think the Groundhog Day, Groundhog Day. Yeah. It's all, uh, Robert Altman was nominated for Best Director for Shortcuts, which mm. didn't really do too well at the box office because it, for one thing, was over three hours long and it, and it had like seven or eight different storylines that didn't really interconnect. They were just sort of, uh, um, um, jumbled together sort of dealt, uh, shuffled together in a, in, a, in a deck and so it was not in a sort of a, it wasn't a commercial movie at all but it's the second year in a row that Robert Altman was nominated for Best Director
4: when his film was not nominated for Best Picture.
0: Wow, wow, incredible.
4: I know everybody loves The Player and it deservedly was was recognized the year before but I actually prefer Shortcuts I think I th- and partly it's because of what Ryan said last week about The Player about about its, its sort of slickness and smoothness. There's... Um, there's a I I like the scruffy, rough around the edges quality of Altman, where it seems like at any minute the whole thing is just going to fall apart, but somehow mm. it stays together. Mm-hmm. And uh, shortcuts, rather remarkably, weaves all of these totally different stories together, and it and it and it works. And I think it gets better the the more times you watch it, the older it gets. I think the better it gets.
0: I think so too. The more you kind of forget that it's tied to these Raymond Carver stories. The better I think it stands as a movie. I, I mean, I think it can, it does pay beautiful tribute to his short stories, but it also, it also just holds together as its own kind of montage of, of, of human behavior. If, if
2: ever
1: a director and an author were made for each other, you would think that Robert Altman and, and Raymond Carver are there are so much the same sort of attitude about about life and about everyday life and about the happenstance and the chances mm. that the, the the accidental coincidences that happen in life to make people's lives go off in strange directions. They are both so into that. And they're both into the, just sort of casually observing life instead of commenting on it.
0: Yeah. Uh, That's one thing you you see about this year that you don't see so much now because we live in such a weird era where like, I'm not saying I agree with James Franco making As I Lay Dying, you know, I don't, Mm -hmm. I I don't know where I fall on the side of that, but, but the fact that he's bringing great literature to the public, I think is a a beautiful thing. and, And you can really see it this year in 93 with, with some of the movies um, that, that got made and, and right at the top of that list I think is, is Shortcuts That that there was a director out there Who thought it would be a great movie To make a bunch of Raymond Carver short stories You know, together And, and imagine just what that did For the appreciation of literature Just that one thing
1: mm-hmm. People Let's probably, so probably had never happened. heard of Raymond Carver, Carver before um, Were turned on to him by the movie
0: Yeah, and with all the ten- I mean, you look at this Oscar list It's just amazing With all the tentpole movies Getting made in Hollywood now You know, you wonder if if they will ever get back to this kind of thing
1: there's so many great performances in uh, in shortcuts it's just even hard to pick one out but i really like julianne moore so much yeah. her sequence and everything is so great and there's a great story that uh, robert altman uh, had her in mind for the movie and he knew what role he wanted her for and he was trying to track her down and finally was able to get her home phone number so he calls her and she's in her kitchen she picks up the phone and he says hi this is robert altman do you know who i am and she's like almost fainted because she's like of course i know who you are you're like an idol of mine and he says well i th- have you in mind for a movie and she said yes 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 i'll do it she says, well, don't you want to hear what it is? He says, no, I don't even care. I'll do anything you want me to do. He's he like, says, okay, well, you're going to have to show way,
0: your red bush. He, Are you ready for yeah, that?
1: Well, yeah. He said, well, oh, there's said nudity. <laughs> and she said, I don't care. Nudity it doesn't matter. She said, well, but it's like like the from the waist down nudity. Oh. And she says that she doesn't remember. But she says, don't even worry about that. Not only would I do it, but you're, the bonus is that I'm the carpet that matches the drapes. You know? <laughs> <laughs> you'll, be so, you'll be glad to know that I'm a genuine redhead. She says she does not remember saying that. But Robert Altman loved that. He told that story again and again and again. <laughs> Yeah, oh, and then every time that he would call him up and ask him about Julianne Morris, her career took off. He would tell the story. She finally had to call him and say, "Could you please, like, I really, you know, cannot ever thank you enough for the break you gave me, but can you please stop talking about my bush <laughs> in these interviews because this is getting a little embarrassing." It smells strong. I'm gonna have some wine. Is that
5: what
6: you're wearing? Yes I thought we were cooking out Stuart's bringing fish, remember? Well, if it's just a barbecue, why are you getting dressed up? This isn't dressed up I'm not changing She'll probably dress up Are you competing?
5: Competing with who?
6: Claire, honey We're talking about Claire Are you competing with Claire? For what? What women compete for, I guess Do you think he's attractive? Who? The husband
5: Stuart it is
6: He's the kind of guy women find attractive, isn't he? The outdoorsman type.
5: We don't know a lot about them. I hope they like something other than chamber music. Isn't
6: it wonderful, Marion, how we can skate around an issue? Always playing our little game.
5: That's a good idea. A game might help break the ice. Jeopardy, maybe? I'm
6: talking about us. I'm talking about now. What about us? You know. Know what? Let's forget it.
5: Forget what? <laughs> what are you talking about?
6: It's nothing. It's ancient history. You know? Something's on your mind. That party. What party? You know what party I'm talking about, Mary? And the one with Mitchell Anderson.
5: Jesus Christ. That was three years ago.
6: You kissed him, didn't no. you? No. Your lipstick was smeared when you came back. How would you know? You were drunk. Oh, Jesus Christ, look at this. God... Damn it, look at this! Look what you made me do! God damn it! I wanted to wear this! That's the way you looked that night with Mitchell Anderson when you were out necking. He kissed you, didn't he? Oh, come on, Ralph, I thought we were through with that. I want you to tell me about that night with Mitchell Anderson. There's nothing to tell. All right. Then tell me about nothingness. I'd like to hear a complete account of nothing. What you didn't do for two and a half hours. Why, Ralph? What's so important it was three years ago all right it's not important it's water under the bridge but what irritates me Marion if that's the right word for it is that that you won't tell me the truth you can't say the obvious you can't admit that you lied. that's what I don't like Marion having to play this charade God Ralph how does this start do you know how to start started because I really I really don't Marian, know how look how at me start it you don't have any panties you don't have on how start because I don't know what how do you think start? you are what are your god Marion, I'm giving you a chance to come clean, clear the slate, onto a higher consciousness. And then don't ever lie to me again, Marion. This is not like you, Ralph. What? To demand your right, Marion, but I want to know. I want to know the truth. We're just talking, right? Yes, Marion, we're just talking. You want me to tell you the truth? That's all I've ever asked, Marion. that satisfy you? Did it satisfy you? Everybody was pretty far gone, as you may or may not I mean, I don't really need all this perspective, just the facts. All right, all right, Ralph. Okay.
5: Somehow, somehow the two of us were elected to go out and get, and get
6: liquor. We drove to the Foremost, which was closed, and then to Kathy's, which was also closed. In fact, everything was closed. I mean, I was beginning to wonder whether anything would be open, and all I could think of were those all-night supermarkets, and I wondered whether anybody would even be in the mood for a drink. We had to drive around half the night looking for an open market. He was really drunk. I didn't even realize how drunk he was until we started driving, and he was driving he was driving terribly slow. He was all hunched over the wheel, and, and uh, we were talking. We were talking about a lot of things.
5: A lot of things that didn't make sense, and about um, religious images, and about this... About this painter, this painter named Larry Rivers, and, um, and then he started talking about Norman Mailer, and about how Norman Mailer stabbed his wife in the breast, and uh, he said he'd hate it if anybody did that to me. He said he'd like to kiss my breast, and then he pulled the car over to the side of the road, and then he kissed me. How long? How long
6: what? How long did he kiss you? Then what?
5: Then he said, do you want to have a go at it?
6: Huh. Jesus, Marion! do you want to have a go at it? Do you want to have a go at it? Do you want to have a go at it? What does that mean, Marion? Do you want to have a go at it? Did he kiss your kids? Did you touch him? Touch him? Touch him? Okay, Ralph. Ralph, you want to know what happened? He kissed me, and I kissed him back. And then we did it. We did it right there in the car. He fucked me right there in the car. I was drunk. It didn't mean anything to me. I wish it hadn't happened, but it did. Is that all? Is that all you want to know? Is that all? Yes, Marion. That's all.
5: Ralph, he didn't come in me. I swear to God, he didn't come in me. Okay. Where are you going, Ralph?
6: Well, Marion, we have guest company. I'm going to go and light the barbecue.
0: God, I love her. I mean, I, I just think of the possibilities of Robert Altman's early career working with her, you know. I know, movie. really. Just, that would have been in some of his movies. She just seems like she really gets it, you know.
1: It's a dark movie, but that one thing that I found out about the movie is that when he, when he approached uh, Raymond Carver, Carver's widow to, to acquire some of the stories, she said, well, someone has been here before you, and they've picked all of the upbeat stories. they picked all of the happy stories already. Those rights have already been bought off, so really all that you're left with are these really dark stories. And mm-hmm. he said, well, that's fine. He said, I can do that. But he got a lot of complaints from critics who didn't realize that at the time because they thought, why would you only choose the very darkest of oh, the Rainbow Carver how stories?
0: interesting. I yeah. know that one of them was so much water so close to home. I know that was one of the stories that, and I, mm-hmm. you know, I think that's about, about a drowning
1: right they find that they are on a fishing trip and they find the body of this of this woman and they don't know what to do with her i think the guy's taking a leak in in the in the in the stream and he realizes he's pissing on this dead body right yeah. and so but they decide what are we going to do well she's dead already you know what's the what's the rush about going back to town and let's go ahead and finish our fishing trip Right. Yeah. and So that was kind of a strange decision to make. They're just going to leave this dead body in the water while they continue their weekend. And so the guy goes back then and tells his wife, who plays his wife. Um, who's the actress? She's fantastic. I can't think of it. Ann
0: Archer plays oh, his wife, Ann I think.
1: Yeah. Uh, and he, t- she t- he breaks the news to his wife about what happened. And it destroys her, the marriage for her. She cannot believe that her husband would do that. She's wrecked. And she can never feel the same way about him again after that. Wow. just a, a fantastic story. It's
0: interesting. Um, the other movie, a uh, great movie, I think, in the race uh, is The Remains of the Day, which is, stars um, Anthony Hopkins and Emma Thompson. And as great as that movie is, because Merchant Ivory had been making so many movies up to that point, it just got a mm-hmm. lot of flack when it came out, weirdly enough. People said, oh, it was yes. Remains of the Day... Um, how at howard's end or something like that oh, but it's that's so, so sad good. because it's such
1: a beautiful movie it
0: really is it should be seen by everybody and it, it i don't know if it's if it's like the book i don't know but because i haven't read the book but
1: um, I don't have it either but you know the remarkable thing about that book you, you think it's so British right it's so thoroughly absolutely intensely British and you just get inside the mind of the British mentality thinking it's written by the Japanese guy
0: oh yeah that's right that's right yeah. it sure is right I can't pronounce amazing that he I'm had trying, to was he able to,
1: to, to uh, uh, mimic that voice
0: and know? what else did he write did he write Mishima no I forget mm, what
1: else I'm trying to think it's Ishiguro to oh,
0: Ishiguro is his name right
1: yeah, right, uh-huh. and he's won a bunch of prizes. He yeah, won a bunch of-
0: and I bet mm-hmm. that book is fantastic. I should totally yeah. read it. But um, yeah. but in the movie Remains of the Day, you know, it's it's um, poor Anthony Hopkins as a sad butler of mm. a kind of a dying era, and he's in love with Emma Thompson, and he can't bring himself to, like, make a move on her. And I think when she tries to make a move on him, he rejects it. And I, I do believe that they go the whole movie without ever getting together, and it's sort of like this squandered opportunity.
1: It is really sad, and it's really it's really chilly. It's really dry, and, and the, emo- the emotion, since he's so reserved and he's so restrained, I think that that might have might have hurt it with the academy because they really like the warm and cuddly movies more right. than the cold, chilly movies.
0: Yeah, um, yeah, and then in the name of the father. I don't really remember that well, but I know it was a good movie, an earnest movie, with a great performance by Daniel Day-Lewis. And Emma Thompson had a a supporting part in that. And, Michael, you were saying that two of them had, two actresses in the race had supporting and leads that they turned in that year.
2: Yeah, that was Holly Hunter and um, Thompson. They both were nominated for Best Actress and and Best Supporting Actress. And I kind of felt that with Best Supporting Actress, they canceled each other out because they already got the Best Actress nods.
0: Right. So mm-hmm, that kind of
2: mm-hmm. left them without. I mean, they could have split it and, and given the best supporting actress to Emma Thompson, and then they could have given the best actress to Holly Hunter, but I, I didn't think that was going to work. And um, I just kind of felt that Emma Thompson's performance was good, but it just wasn't Oscar worthy, in my, in my opinion. Yeah. And-, and,
0: very, and,
2: it, and it wasn't a very long performance. I don't think she was in it for a very long time. I can't remember it that well, but um, she's great in it, but it just didn't seem like people was, you know, Worthy
0: of an well, she's so beloved in the Academy. She was—I remember living through that. Like, she just was. Everybody loved Emma Thompson because she's funny, she's smart, she's friendly. You know, and she's smart.
1: I mean, she didn't, hadn't she already won a Best Screenplay Oscar by that time, or had she? Or was that still not to come? Yet.
0: Or, That's not still not yet. To
1: come. Okay, yeah. But everyone knew how smart she was because she was so smart and sharp in interviews.
0: Right and funny. Yeah, you
2: know, yeah. She makes, mm-hmm. um, she's actually. He's actually a comedian. Prior to being a dramatic actress,
0: right, right, and she, she didn't she already get dumped by um, what's his name by now? Didn't he run no, off? A, still, no, they were still married at the time. They're still married, okay, yeah, because it's coming up when he totally dumps her for some young... Right,
1: and that can cause... That created a lot of sympathy for her, too, you know. And a lot of hatred
0: of him, which is somehow right. how it goes.
1: Probably the other novel that you're thinking of by Ishigura is uh, Never Let Me Go, which was a couple oh, years Never ago. Oh, Never Let Me Adapted, Go. adapted okay. into, yeah. with, uh, you know, Carey Mulligan and Karen Knightley and... Uh, Andrew, Andrew. You know,
2: the funny thing about the, the funny Remains of the Day is that the Merchant Ivory machine, I mean, they they did Howard's in, they did... Um, the one about, um, I'm put it in my brain. Um,
1: uh, um, Room with the view. a Room of the with the View. Room
2: with a View, yeah. They made these beautiful films. I mean, they were just beautiful and brilliant films, and it's kind of wondering that they haven't, that they didn't, they, all, all those films that they made won Oscars, but not the best picture. They won critical Oscars, they won, um, all their films have won, I think, screenplay. Um, except for the remains of the day, I think that that. Wow, was that, yeah.
0: really? So they never won Best Picture with any of their they're, movies.
2: None of their films have won. They won. Um, Room with the View won screenplay, and then Howard then won like actress screenplay and something else. And um, then you got then you had this film, and it's like they're so brilliant, but their films just didn't seem to reach the Best Picture category. Mm-hmm even though they're just poetic, brilliant films.
0: God, it's so interesting. God, I never thought of that. There should have been one Best Picture winner, you'd think, right? But which one was going to win? There wasn't one that could win, really. Well, uh,
2: you know, it's the whole thing about British films in American cinema. You know, people just don't, uh, people just, Americans just don't kind of understand British films. They don't like, because a lot of British films are talking. And there's, yeah. and, and there's characters actually relating to one another and especially, go
1: ahead especially Merchant Ivory they're so literary and that's why I think that they, they, they have racked up quite a few uh, acting nominations with their movies because the roles are so rich the roles are so rich and the lines that people get to say are so beautiful because they're based on such fantastic literary sources
2: and it's like watching a novel if you see those mm-hmm. it's like watching a novel they brilliant and a lot of American films don't do that except for the film that you probably will talk about that was
1: nominated for best supporting actress which was um uh, uh, great segue you know because i was just about to say probably that's martin scorsese in merchant and ivory mode where he mm-hmm. probably um had may have had you know it, that it, it was his first really uh, uh, grand literary adaptation like that and it's probably my it's probably would have been my my second or third favorite movie of 1993 yeah. age of innocence uh I it's so agree. polished and so exquisite
0: um, it's also weird. Like it's not. I mean, when 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 it, when when he was making that movie, that's exactly what happened. The press kind of made fun of him for for trying to make a Merchant Ivory movie. I remember it because I lived through it, and he's. Was, I was already a fan by then. And but I think what people didn't realize is that Scorsese is an obsessive. He's obsessed with mm-hmm. history and mm-hmm. time and place, and that's what really I get about. Why he would pick Edith Wharton because she is too, you know, and that he's
1: about he's all about the history of New York too, specifically the history of New York. Yeah,
0: and so it's this mannered New York society, you know, it's Mm -hmm. uh, and and all the weird details of mannered New York society are are in that movie. Um, There's there's a lot of voiceover. Michelle Pfeiffer plays this kind of wrongly, you know, accused of being tawdry character that Daniel Day Lewis falls in love with, and he can't do anything about it because he's he's um, engaged to be married to Winona Ryder and by the time that he's ready to just kind of give up his social standing and run off with Michelle Pfeiffer, she announces, Winona Ryder announces she's pregnant and there's nothing really that can be done and mm-hmm. they kind of live this whole movie never, ever, ever getting, getting together, kind of like The Remains of the Day, but mm-hmm. the, there's it's one all scene... I was going to say, there's one scene in Age of Innocence that's, like, one of the best scenes in a Scorsese movie, which is when Daniel Day-Lewis realizes that everybody in the room thinks he's having an affair with Michelle Pfeiffer. It was, as Mrs.
5: Archer said to Mrs. Welland, a great event for a young couple to give their first dinner, and it was not to be undertaken lightly. There was a hired chef, two borrowed footmen, roses from Hendersons, Roman punch, and menus on gilt-edged cards. It was considered a particular triumph that the vandalidens at May's request, stayed in the city to be present at her farewell dinner for the Countess Olenska. I to leave New York after I, I like Archer saw all the harmless-looking people at the table as a band of quiet conspirators, with himself and Ellen the center of their conspiracy. He guessed himself to have been for months the center of countless silently observing eyes and patiently listening ears. He understood that somehow the separation between himself and the partner of his guilt had been achieved. And he knew that now the whole tribe had rallied around his wife. He was a prisoner in the center of an armed camp. Regina's not well at all, but that doesn't stop Beaufort from devoting as much time to any ring as he can manage. The best thing Beaufort could do would be to go and stay at Regina's little place in North Carolina. He could breed trotters. As well as and the key to his release had been returned the day before, by mail, unopened. To do all this. He may stay here as a deliberate challenge to the outrage he's created. Perhaps he'll run for public office then will any ring be his first lady
4: <laughs> was your trip from Washington very tiring
5: the heat on the train was dreadful but all travel has its hardships
4: well, whatever they may be they're worth it just to get away I mean to do a lot of traveling myself soon Hmm. What about you, Philip? What about a little adventure? Athens and Smyrna, maybe. Maybe even Constantinople. Possibly, possibly.
5: But not Naples. Dr. Benham says there's a fever.
4: Oh, really? A, a fever in, in Naples? Well, there's always India,
1: of course. You must have three weeks to do India properly.
4: Absolutely. Beaufort may not receive invitations anymore, but it's clear he still maintains a certain position. Horizontal, from all I've heard. (laughs) If things go on like this, we'll be seeing our children fighting for invitations to swindlers' houses and marrying Beaufort's bastards.
3: Has he got any? (laughs) Careful there, gentlemen. Draw it mild. Draw it mild. Society has a history of tolerating vulgar women, after all. Up to a point.
1: once it tolerates men of that kind, the only prospect is totally... Have you ever noticed?
3: It's the people with the worst cooks who are always yelling about being poisoned when they dine out. Lefferts used to be a little more adept, I thought. But then grace is not always required, as long as one knows the steps. Mark you. I hear them. I've never heard Lefferts so... ...bound in the sentiments
5: that adorn Christian manhood. Indignation lends a scathing eloquence. It's
3: almost as effective as fear. The pressure at home must be unrelenting. Mm-hmm. And I never expected to hear such a peon to the saint. My mother had a bronze oh. reduction of the Venus de Milo she wanted to give us for that space, but... The
5: silent organization which held this whole small world together was determined to put itself on record.
3: She's ...seeing the
5: it's. It had never for a moment questioned the propriety of Madame Olenska's conduct. It had never questioned Archer's fidelity. And it had never heard of, suspected, or even conceived possible anything at all to the contrary. Ellen! From the seamless performance of this ritual, Archer knew that New York believed him to be Madame Olenska's lover discussing the Martha Washington Bowl Yes, we have it during Easter week to benefit the blind society They do excellent I, work Lawrence, oh, yes, yes.
3: Lawrence, I'm so
5: sorry And he understood for the first time that his wife shared the beliefs of course Um, I'll write to you as soon as I'm settled and let you know where I am. Oh, yes, that would be lovely.
4: Shall I see you to your carriage?
5: We are driving dear Ellen home. Goodbye.
4: I'll see you very soon in Paris.
5: Oh, if you and May could come.
3: Shall we make our way to the carriage, my dear?
6: Good evening, Newland. Good night, Newman. Good night, sir. Good night, Larry. night.
0: And the way that whole scene is filmed, you know, go back and watch it again. You'll see Mm -hmm. it's so it makes it such a nightmare, such a cloistered nightmare, as opposed to the idealized version that you see in the Merchant Ivory films.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, he based, I think Scorsese, I think he said uh, in the interview that he based some of his visual uh, schemes in Age of Innocence on Age of Innocence on William Wyler's um, The Heiress, where you've got these these morals and, 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 and a de, uh, standard of, of decorum that people have to live by that they feel trapped by and claustrophobic and he, he wanted to capture that same feeling in The Age of Innocence that R- William Wilder got in, uh, in The Heiress and also Visconti in uh, The Leopard the same sort of thing where you've got these where you're trapped by society's
4: mores. It's interesting because people people who are generally fans of Scorsese tend to dismiss *Age of Innocence*. I think they have a difficult time reconciling a movie like *Godfather*—I'm sorry, *Goodfellas*—with a movie like *Age of Innocence*. But there's really a lot of similarity, not only in the the, the New York aspect of it, but also just this this cloistered society where there's very strict rules that you have to follow. And if you don't, then horrible things happen to you. Obviously in good fellows, they, they deal, they deal with, with, with guns instead, but in there's a sort of an emotional violence in age of innocence. That's, that's, uh, that's almost crushing.
1: Mm-hmm. If you make the wrong step in that society, then it's social death. You, 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 you've, you've been, you can be assassinated socially in that yeah. world.
2: That and, that, that, a-
1: and that's worse than a physical death.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, the Age of Innocence, uh, doesn't it talk about, like, the Gilded Age? That takes place, mm-hmm. like, in the 1890s, I believe, isn't it? Maybe
1: 1885 or 1890. The thing about when you do a period piece, when you do a period movie, it, it's, it's it is always great if it does relate to something in current contemporary society, if, they can, if there's a connection between what's going on between then and now. And, and, and Stacy picked a really good... Uh, subject with the um, with the Gilded Age because of the class system and everything because the class system still exists even though it's not as regimented and as formalized as it was back then it certainly still exists and so you can examine um, the things in contemporary society through the lens of the past. Right and uh a lot of movies do that and it, it, hollywood gets a lot of criticism takes a lot of flack sometimes for coming late to the party like uh, for instance about the vietnam war they didn't start making movies about v- vietnam and still, until until the, the war was over and so people were saying well great now you tell us you know but i think that, that we, we when we say that we overlook the fact that the hollywood movies that came out about vietnam were not so much about the war, but they were about the people coming home from the war. They were about the veterans. You know, we don't, we don't, I think we forget about how, what a hard time the veterans of of Vietnam vets had when they came home, how they didn't get the parades. They didn't get, they, in fact, they were, they were looked down upon. and, and, And everyone just wanted to forget about that whole part of American history. And so the vets really had a hard time. But I think movies like The Deer Hunter and Coming Home and, um, born on the 4th of July and platoon really helped America understand what the soldiers had been through. And I think it was a, a healing process that helped help the vets probably more than it helped more than it did when they were in the middle of the war.
0: Right. That's interesting. We- That's but true. let's, um, in terms of that, I
1: was going to say, though, the, re- the reason I brought that up, though, in, in those old movies is because there was also something else going on in the culture at the time that was seeping into American consciousness that Hollywood was, for once, right on the ball. Because in 1985, Rock Hudson died of AIDS. Mm-hmm. And in the 80s, there had been movies like Personal Best and Making Love, and we mentioned a couple of others like... Like even in in France, there was Cahier uh, Fol, you know, uh, where they and a lot of the movies from in the 80s that were trying to to touch upon gay lifestyle, but they didn't really know how to handle it. And a lot of the movies from the 80s are a little bit problematic. By the 90s, though, the, they really started to realize that they needed to get serious about this subject. And one of the movies from this year that uh, was a really significant movie, I think, for Hollywood and for the Oscars and for the American society in general was Philadelphia.
0: Mm.
3: Excuse me. Am I being fired?
4: Let me put it this way, Andy.
3: Your place in the future of this firm is no longer secure. We feel it isn't fair to keep you here when your prospects are limited. And now, uh, I don't want to
4: rush you out. We've got a committee meeting.
3: Excuse me, Charles. With all due respect, this, this is preposterous. It, it, it doesn't make any sense. Oh, you're right, Beckett. You don't have an attitude problem. Take it easy, Walter. If you had lost confidence in me, why'd you give me the Highline suit? Andy, you nearly blew the entire case, for Christ's sakes. That alone is inexcusable it would have been catastrophic for us Uh uh-huh so you were concealing your illness that's correct all
2: right explain this to me like i'm a two-year-old okay because there's an element to this thing i just cannot get through my thick head didn't you have an obligation to tell your employer you had this dreaded deadly infectious disease
3: That's not the point. From the day they hired me to the day I was fired, I served my clients consistently, thoroughly, with absolute excellence. If they hadn't fired me, that's what I'd be doing today. And they don't want to fire you for having AIDS, so in spite of your brilliance, they'd make you look incompetent, thus the mysterious lost file? Is that what you're trying to tell me? Correct. I was sabotaged. I don't buy it, Counselor. That's very disappointing. I don't see a case. I have a case. If you don't want it for personal reasons. Thank you, that's correct. I don't. Well, thank you for your time, counsel.
1: It was a way to help America come to grip with what was going on. Uh, And it was so brilliant, I think, because... What better representative or what better ambassador to, from Hollywood than Tom Hanks, who is the quintessential everyman, right? He was the Jimmy Stewart of the, of the 1980s and 1990s, and also Denzel Washington, who is immensely popular. Mm-hmm. To have these two guys come to American theaters across the country and explain to them about gay life and about AIDS, who, what better lesson, what better teachers, than, than, and what, what better medium than the movies to do that?
2: You know, that's kind of interesting because um, when the AIDS crisis started, um, I believe it was um, around the Reagan era, President Reagan, for his whole eight years, never said the word AIDS. Mm-hmm. He never talked about the whole crisis of the AIDS, um, the epidemic. And it's interesting how this movie kind of opened up people's minds to the gay culture and about AIDS, where our own government hid behind it and said nothing about it.
0: Mm-hmm. And Tom Hanks was very um, he was very involved as he usually is. You know, he's such a good-hearted person. And, and aren't we coming... so Unforgiven One last year and the year before that was Silence of the Lambs. Well, here's Jonathan Demme coming back with Philadelphia which is really a drastic turn from Silence of the Lambs which was, you know, a genre entertaining horror movie. And now he's making, you know, what people would consider a cause movie quote-unquote. But at the same time um, it was it was known for Tom Hanks's incredible acting. Nobody ever talked about Philadelphia really as Tom Hanks is playing a gay man. They didn't look at it like that. It was right. this is a man with AIDS. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It wasn't it wasn't considered quote a gay cause movie at the time, but it, it really did set a precedent for for movies like that to be made. Because well, absolutely.
2: So. Well, yeah. it came out at the right time because mm. the movie would not have been successful if it had coming out came out during like the beginning of the AIDS crisis. It wouldn't have been that successful as it is, uh-huh. as it was when it came out in ninety three. Yeah, so and it was
1: really perfect perfect timing because you know uh, of course New York was ahead of the game before anyone they in, in on Broadway in like nineteen ninety was when Angels Angels in America. Um, Premiered on Broadway and and was just a sensation. It won the Pulitzer Prize and a, and just a buttload of Tonys and and uh, um, that was that was seeping into the consciousness on the coast and then then on television too. I believe Ellen's Show began in 1993 and even though she didn't come out on her show and didn't have the famous gay kiss on the show until I believe 1990. or even 95, everyone who knew anything about Ellen knew that she was a lesbian. And certainly everyone in Hollywood knew. And so she was also a fantastic ambassador from from the gay world, from the gay realm, along with Tom Hanks and um, other people that were starting to come out um, and be more open about their sexuality. So little by little, the country was getting used to the idea of gay people, and it was a turning point. And I believe that that uh, Philadelphia really was a turning point in helping people uh, come to grips with their feelings because it was, edu- it was the way the movie itself was structured. Um, where Denzel Washington is the prejudiced one. He's big. He's he's afraid of it. He's afraid of gay. He doesn't like gay people. He admits openly. He, gay people make him uncomfortable, and he's really nervous and scared of of AIDS. And so he represented a lot of people in the audience. And so he was like a test case. We could identify. Our audience could identify with him as he learned to be more tolerant. And it was, as you said, Sasha. It was a social problems movie like a cause it was a cause movie I said it wasn't
0: so much I I think people didn't well I mean what I mean by that is that because it it was was Tom Hanks and because he's such a Mr. America he was so Mm -hmm. um, he was so much a part of of you know mainstream culture which Mm -hmm. you know I was just listening to Dan Savage earlier and he was talking about how hard it was for him as a teenager to come out he said it was the hardest thing he ever had to do and you know nobody was supporting him at the time, mm-hmm. wherever he lived, like he lived in the South, I think, but
5: mm-hmm.
0: nobody was supporting him. But he did it anyway, and he was talking about how different things got later. And this movie is kind of the, like you say the, the starting point of that. Um, to have Tom Hanks, you know, Mr. Hollywood or whatever at the time, although this is maybe the beginning of the Tom Hanks reign, um, and then to also have Bruce Springsteen uh, contribute a really, f- really, you know, Bruce Springsteen at this time was you know like the most popular musician in America and Probably. He, and his song was for this movie and it was his song was a really big deal and they played it constantly and so it wasn't just that it was a cause movie or whatever; it was it was part of pop culture by now,
6: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know.
0: And I really think that that did change people's minds.
1: I, I think it was a hybrid. I believe it was a cause movie in a way, but they did it in such a subtle way that they sneaked the cause in on people while they were they were caught up in the drama. Because it was also kind of a, like a 1950s melodramatic Douglas Sirk type of weepy movie too. And then the second half of the movie is the classic genre of the courtroom film, where you have have a case like To Kill a Mockingbird or 12 Angry Men where you teach the audience a moral lesson in the courtroom where you're able to give speeches about something that people wouldn't have any patience for in any other setting.
2: Right. But an
1: audience wouldn't have any patience to listen to these this lecture unless you're in a courtroom and there are lawyers talking about it. So it's so educational, I think. And then not only that, not only was the movie significant and the, 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 the its timing was, was really fortunate, Tom Hanks' uh, acceptance speech at the Oscars that year was also... Really, in some ways, it was even more moving than his performance because he talked about his gay drama teacher and how he wouldn't be who he is today if not for the person in his life who influenced him to become an actor in the first place.
3: Here's what I know. I uh, could not be standing here without that undying love that uh, was just sung about uh, by not Bruce, but Neil Young. And I have that in uh, a lover that is so close to fine, we should all be able to experience such heaven right here on earth. I know also that um, I should not be doing this. I should not be here, but I am because of the union of such filmmakers as Ed Saxon, Ron wanner Christy Z. Attack Fujimono, uh, Jonathan Demi, who, who seems... To have these attached to his limbs with, for every actor that, that works with him of late. And a cast that includes Antonio Banderas, who, who second to my lover, is the only person I would trade for. <laughs> and a cast that includes many other people, but the actor who really put his film in, image at risk and shown because of his integrity, Mr. Denzel Washington, who I really must share this with. I would not be standing here if it weren't for two very important men in my life, two that I haven't spoken with in a while, but I had the pleasure of just the other evening Mr. Raleigh Farnsworth, who was my high school drama teacher, (laughs) who taught me that act well the part, there all the glory lies. And one of my classmates under Mr. Farnsworth, Mr. John Gilkerson. I mention their names because they are two of the finest gay Americans, two wonderful men that I had the good fortune to be associated with, to fall under their inspiration at such a young age. I wish my babies could have the same sort of teacher, the same sort of friends. And there lies my dilemma here tonight. I know that my work in this case is magnified by the fact that the streets of heaven are too crowded with angels. We know their names. They number a thousand for each one of the red ribbons that we wear here tonight. They finally rest in the warm embrace of the gracious creator of us all, a healing embrace that cools their fevers, that clears their skin, and allows their eyes to see the simple, self-evident, common-sense truth that is made manifest by the benevolent creator of us all and was written down on paper by wise men, tolerant men, in the city of Philadelphia 200 years ago. God bless you all. God have mercy on us all. And God bless America.
2: Also, remember that speech um, uh, gave birth to the movie in and out too. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, it was that movie. It was his speech that opened the doors for that movie where Kevin Kline supposedly was gay, but he wasn't gay. But then he turned out to be gay at the end of the film. Well, it was that speech that prompted him to make that film.
1: Right, because Kevin Kline's character in the in that movie is a teacher, isn't he? He is or, a teacher,
2: and his yeah. student Matt Dillon wins an Academy Award. <laughs> he oh, yeah, that? right. Now, yes. Yeah. So that's where they got that from. But I, but I, what I wanted to say about the movie was that it wasn't preachy, and it was one man's story about him having AIDS. It wasn't like um, Angels in America and other films where it went the whole broad scope of the AIDS crisis. It, it was just one story about this one man. And what I found interesting about this movie was that it opened up with him at the doctor's office getting his transfusion. Mm-hmm. And that's, it's really odd because when I first heard that they to do a movie about him playing an AIDS character, I thought that maybe he would be discovering that he has AIDS, but he already has it in the film. So he's had mm-hmm. it for a while. So that's interesting that it starts off with him in the doctor's office. And then they say that his blood, his, his white cell count is too low or something like that. I -hmm. can't remember how it was, but that's interesting, but it was just his story. So it wasn't preachy. It didn't preach AIDS to me.
1: Right, how I felt, it you know. became a, it became what it was. It became a, a story instead of about uh, gay lifestyle or about AIDS. It almost became a story about prejudice, and and to have a black lawyer uh, be able to recognize that gay people were undergoing the same sort of prejudice and and being shunned the same way that that black people were twenty years earlier was another way for it to connect with people. I'd forgotten the fact that that's the way the movie started, but it makes sense to me because the reason that there was a court case in the first place is because Tom Hanks was a lawyer who was trying to hide the fact from his law partners that he was gay and that he had AIDS, and he was trying to cover up the fact that he was even sick with, with makeup over the little lesions that he had on his face and stuff like that until they finally discovered and they fired him from the law office, which was a discriminatory Made it, made it a case of discrimination instead of a case of of, uh, of illness. It wasn't a disease problem. It was a discrimination problem.
0: Well, interestingly, right. um, the takes us right up to today, this year's Oscar race, because they have the Dallas Buyers Club, which is sort of similar to Philadelphia in that it's about two um, characters, one gay, one not gay, and homophobic, like Denzel Washington, only in, in Dallas Buyers Club, he's the one who gets AIDS. And it's really about how our, you know, our government and, and the FDA really fucked things up for, for early patients of AIDS and just lets, uh, you know, so many people die when they didn't have to. But, um, yeah, here. Hello?
2: Yeah, you're breaking up with me.
0: Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. I'm just in love with someone else.
2: I'm <laughs> <laughs> well, so sorry, will Michael. <laughs> will
0: go on. I'm sorry. I had something to say about Philadelphia that I just forgot. Uh, sorry. Oh, God. oh, yeah, I know what it was. Okay. Isn't it just like the Academy, though, to ignore a movie for Best Picture that is so about modern day and stick with, you know, all these movies that kind of, um, you know, reach back to a different time, you know, and, and Schindler's List can be excused, I think, because it's about the Holocaust. But the other movies, and the piano was just a great movie. But it just sort of seems like remains of the day being there instead of Philadelphia for Best Picture just seems kind of criminal to me, almost. You know, how crazy and and how kind of in denial the voters continually are up to today about ignoring films that are you know that are really about what's happening in our culture right this moment. You know. Mm-hmm. Well, they have it's, to it's,
2: give it to the British. The British always come out with a masterpiece film, and Hollywood loves that. So they love, the yeah, that's there.
0: true. I would think that you they know? left all that behind, but apparently they have not. When the king yeah, speaks, Just think
1: how, even twenty years later, with with Brokeback Mountain, there were still enough people in the Academy to who were who didn't even want to see that movie that who were resistant to it who killed its chances for best picture although it had won everything else in in sight on the horizon but you would think that it would have at least but at least denzel would have been nominated for for philadelphia too because his performance is maybe even more difficult in some ways than what tom hanks did because he has to he undergoes a a a bigger um arc
0: but he's but he's black
1: <laughs> oh, really? That's but true.
0: Really <laughs>
2: nominated? He's black. You didn't nominate If black they nominated, people. then would that have maybe canceled them out? Because he probably would have had a best actor nod along uh, with Tom Hanks.
1: Oh, I was thinking he maybe, maybe would have gone for supporting. They would have maybe he would have run in supporting. They would have even campaigned him in supporting. It's what I was thinking that Denzel might have been supporting actor. Well, but you're was, right. If they had been both been best actor contenders, uh, it would have been trouble for Tom Hanks.
0: So it yeah. won two Oscars: one for Tom Hanks, one for Mr. Bruce Springsteen. The Boss And it was also nominated For Best Makeup Best Music Neil Young And um, Best Screenplay um, That's it No Best Director No Best Picture Hard to believe really, really I'm sorry sucks. they suck <laughs> That sucks That's lame
1: The screenplay is really, when you look at the screenplay and the way that it managed to teach as many lessons as it does. And I mean, like several times in the movie, Denzel Washington says to Tom Hanks, "Explain to me like I'm a two-year-old." And then, when he's in the courtroom, he says, "Now I'm going to explain to you like you're two years old." And that's what that's what America needed to hear. They needed to be led. I need someone to hold their hand and explain to them the very basic situation that was going on. People who hadn't had ever wanted to think about it before, but they find themselves in a Tom Hanks movie and they're getting a lesson in intolerance.
0: Well, the only critics that, that nominated um, or gave Jonathan Demme any love were the Chicago film critics. Yay, probably because of Roger Ebert alone. When mm-hmm. I look back over Oscar history, I'm just amazed at the impact that Roger Ebert himself had on the Oscar race. Mm-hmm. And-
2: well, the thing is that Hollywood is, was still homophobic back then. You know, it was coming out of the 80s Um, they still wanted to keep gay people in the closet, Hollywood. And so there were Mm -hmm. very few films that came out. I remember they they made a big deal out of that movie Making Love when that came out. You know, it was Mm -hmm. a big deal because it was one of the first films that had, I don't know one of the first films, but it had two um, actors kissing and making love and stuff like that. It was like Hollywood, like completely, they condemned that movie. That's why the movie didn't make any money because that movie crashed and burned when it came out. And Mm so movies about gay lifestyle uh, it's very hard for Hollywood to take. That's mm-hmm. why they had to evolve up to Brokeback Mountain. But even though they still couldn't evolve because they couldn't give that film Best Picture, which it was the Best Picture of the year. Well, I tell dark. you, yes, it was yes, really yes, good. Yes. It was, and
1: but, It came out uh, the same year, I believe, that Personal Best came out, and I think that Hollywood was experimenting to see if audiences would accept it. But I think both of those movies, like you say, they bombed at the box office, and so and that's another thing. Hollywood is not going to make movies. Even if they care about the subject, if nobody's going to go see them, they well, realize you, that America wasn't ready for that yet. They still wanted to see the flamboyant gays or the guys dressing up right, as girls, right. like in Tootsie, or they, they wanted have to see. A, they
0: still have a long way to go because if it's unfortunate to me that the all the actors that have won playing gay characters, yet it's still kind of. Um, it's hard for actors to come out as gay and mm-hmm. get those kind of roles and draw that kind of audience and win Oscars as out gay people. And, and, and it's, the always, it's so, always the
1: straight actors winning always. for playing a gay so guy. Yeah. Right. Hanks, and, it, and the reason William is because Hurt. it's the thing that you win an Oscar when you play someone who has an affliction.
0: Exactly. Right? Their affliction <laughs> yeah. is they're gay. <laughs>
2: that's right, exactly right. I hate to there say it. There was a brilliant <laughs> film made back in 1971 called The Boys in the Band. And it was perhaps a very flamboyant <laughs> film about gay. It, 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 it was sort of like um, The Big Chill, but it was gay, gay. And it was very, very well made. It was, came, came out of Hollywood called Boys in the Band. If you ever mm-hmm. see it, it's a really good movie. But it was Hollywood's, their portrayal of gay men.
1: It was brutal. I, I, have, a, I have a really ambivalent, I have a ambivalent feelings about that movie. I know that it was groundbreaking, but all of the characters in that movie are so uh, spiteful and mean and bitter, and it just showed all of the very worst facets of gay society. They're all just just uh, hateful and, and sniping at each other all the time, and it was a really sad movie. They're all sort of pathetic. William right, Fried, they are. William Friedkin directed that.
0: But it is a brilliant piece,
2: though. It is a brilliant character piece. It really is. Well, I've only known it from what
0: Ryan says about it, and he's always said, like, negative things, that it's a stereotypical, you know, that it took people a really long time to wash away... Kind of the that, that bad know. taste, the bad remember, taste that, they, yeah. that they
1: were that they well, were shown was in the band. I know there are people like that, but to show that a movie that only exists of a, of a, ten people at a party who are all like that, it gave a really bad impression of of the gay lifestyle. I think.
0: There's a really great bit in um, Dan Savage's book. If anybody ever, I listened to it on my drive to Telluride, and he talks about how when he was a kid, his father was you know typically homophobic and he would come in and watch TV with his dad, and there was some show, I think it was The Jeffersons, or one of these TV shows back then, and there was a gay character, and the character would come in with a pink poodle, and he mm. would come in, like, you know, mincing in, with his wrist out, you know, his hand over his wrist, and, you know, he would say stuff, and all the audience would laugh, oh, it was so funny, you know, his mm. dad would laugh, or his I think he said his dad showed disgust. Mm. And at that moment, he was so horrified to be gay, he knew he was gay, and he, so he vowed never to have a poodle in his life. He would never be the gay man with the poodle. Well, cut to all these years later, he adopts... A, kid, a boy And his husband And he adopt a boy Named DJ mm. And DJ wants A fucking poodle <laughs> And Dad <laughs> Savage is like I'm not getting a poodle And he said DJ talked him into Getting this poodle That was like blind In one eye And had three uh, legs yeah. Or something And, and he, he had to walk And he said And DJ's never gonna Walk the dog So I have to be The gay guy Walking <laughs> the poodle At night In a gay park In San Francisco <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> they are great dogs, though. They're one of the best breeds, and one of the best d- disposition of dogs, you know, in, that you can get. And so I, it's I a just, shame that they have yeah. that stigma attached to them. No, but I just
0: bring it up to say that, mm-hmm. like the way, like Michael saying, the way that Hollywood portrayed gay characters up to—I don't know when the breaking point was. I know, it was I believe
1: not- it was. I believe it might have happened in 1993, though, because it seemed like after that, you know, then we had uh, my best friend's wedding, where really it became cool to have a gay sidekick. Who could be a really natural normal gay person like Rupert Everett, who was really cool and charming and sexy in his own right, and he didn 't have to be mincing around and he didn 't have to be dying of AIDS, he could just be a normal gay guy who was a friend of yours right. you know and I think that a lot of television shows because right after Ellen then there was uh will and Grace came on TV you know and that was a big hit and uh, interesting um, thanks for mentioning um, uh, the boys in the band, Michael, because it mm-hmm. reminds me of of uh, the same year in HBO, uh, nineteen ninety three. That's the year that uh, HBO uh, broadcast and the band plays on.
2: Right, you know? I remember that. Yeah, yeah,
1: and so that was another. So it was really sort of starting to seep into the American consciousness that this is something that we is all around us, and we're either going to accept it or we're going to be looking like like bigots if we don't accept it.
2: Right. Well, you know, in, until you know Hollywood grows up in that area, because. Remember, in '93, there weren't a lot of celebrities that were out of the closet, like not, like there are today. Everyone's coming out of the closet now. Everyone is gay now in Hollywood. It's like accept it. But back in
0: '93, <laughs> not Tom Cruise. No, <laughs> still well, in the closet. Not John, still, well, not John Travolta. John Travolta needs to come out. John Travolta already. Why is I he mean, still in the there closet? There are afraid to come out. But it wasn't. but the thing
2: is, is that. You know, um, also, that movie probably could have scared people back in the closet, too.
1: Mm, you know? A little. Yeah, I can see that. Uh-huh. A little because, bit, you know, yeah, well, actors it, luckily, for sure. luckily, like three or four years after Philadelphia, the, uh, the they found the right combination of meds so that it was no longer a death sentence to have AIDS. And so it wasn't like a thing that such people had to be so terrified of where you even were afraid. I guess people in the 90s were like afraid to even shake hands with you or something.
0: Um, I just wanted to say that I looked on Metacritic, and Philadelphia only has a 66 rating. It doesn't have any scores of 100. And it has a negative review by the Washington Post, Um, L.A. Times' Kenneth Turan, which said, Genuinely moving at times, Philadelphia is trying perhaps too hard to break America's heart. Why do I think that all the problems with the Oscars are in the hands of the critics? Mm. <laughs> Why know, is it like really, the critics right. are if always any, if so you would disappointing? Think if anyone
1: could have seen what Philadelphia was trying to do, that the critics would have glommed on to that and would have been sympathetic to it and been able to, to, to support what it was trying to do instead of bashing it. But yeah. no So apparently. that explains
0: why it didn't get a Best Picture nomination. The critics really had a lot of power back then. Yeah. Um, but let's quickly move on to the next movie, if we can. Um, yes. So that's in the other. The only movie that the Oscars picked in Best Picture was The Fugitive, which we can talk. We, we can talk a little bit about uh, The Fugitive. J- Tommy Lee Jones won for that, and he was great in it. He was funny. He was entertaining. And um, but but remember we. We, I have to disclose this to the podcast listeners. We actually lost half of our podcast. I lost half of our podcast. I did it. It's my fault.
1: No, it's not your it fault. Is.
0: No, let's just face it. It is. That's fine. <laughs> but anyway, it we did. a human era. So we're but trying We recorded to-
1: Sunday night, I think, and, and, and we talked about The Fugitive when we talked about Schindler's List then, and we lost the end of the podcast because it, 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 it didn't make it onto the recording. So we're having to. Go back and fill in what, we, what, what we lost But on the upside,
0: we just got all that wonderful stuff about Philadelphia Which we hadn't even recorded at all in the mm, first That's one. right, so, so that's good So everything has, comes with a blessing, a little blessing um, mm-hmm. So anyway, um, The Fugitive, we were saying that it was, a, it was a movie made from a TV show That somehow managed to make good And, and, and nowadays, that's, that's very run-of-the-mill But back then, it was considered kind of a big deal That a, a movie made of a TV show actually did really well and that was one of the reasons why The Fugitive, which was a huge moneymaker that year, also was nominated for Best Picture.
2: Also, it was at the height of Harrison Ford's career, too. I mean, he, every film he came out with was a number one hit. So that mm-hmm. really helped him out a great deal, too.
1: Just a couple of years earlier, he had done, just a, we talked about Witness, how, 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 how he surprised everybody with Witness, his range and his depth in Witness.
0: He also well, was, scores of 100, Roger Ebert and Elvis Mitchell um on metacritic so it got much much better reviews than even grouchy old jonathan rosenbaum from the chicago reader liked it (laughs) but of course that's only 10 critics nowadays we have 43 critics reviewing movies back then there was 10 10 Mm
1: -hmm. but you know the amazing remarkable thing about the fugitive though are the are the other categories that it was nominated in you know, because *The Fugitive* not only did it was it, uh, it win the Best Supporting Actor Oscar for Tommy Lee Jones, but it was nominated for Best Picture and Best Editing.
0: That's what I mean. I know. Yeah. So Robert Altman gets in for *Shortcuts*, and *Shortcuts* should have been in for Best Picture. And this guy, the director of uh, *Fugitive*, doesn't get in for a director. And but yeah. the movie gets in. And for I best
1: think best one part. of our one of our listeners or one of our readers on uh, people uh, listeners who ask us a question on Twitter. Um, Kevin Dillon wanted to know why it was that *Fugitive* ma- made such a big splash, and why it was that Tommy Lee Jones was able to to win Best Actor over Ray Fiennes for *Schindler's List*.
0: It was kind of the *Argo* thing. It was like a it was a really popular movie that a lot of people were quoting, and especially Tommy Lee Jones. It was, you know, what you see in the Academy that strain of po- of populist, you know, popular entertainment. Um, kind of comes and goes a little bit, but you really did see it last year with Argo, and, and I remember thinking the Fugitive was kind of like that. It was it was the one movie the public really liked. The mm-hmm. public isn't going to go out and see the Piano. They're not going to go see Remains of the Day. They're not going to go see Shortcuts. Uh, they'll, they'll see Schindler's less sure, it's Spielberg, but the Fugitive was the the people's choice, you know. And, and you got to think of um, Dave Carger's description of Academy voters as Joe the Sound Guy, right? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of Academy voters who who aren't you know, in the writer and director branches, but who are in the technical branches, sound people, editors, you know, actors. And they mm-hmm. tend to, to vote more for mainstream entertainment. You know, and, and The Fugitive is a really good, solid movie that a lot of people liked, and it made a shitload of money. So that's how it... A shitload
1: got. of money. It made $185 million in America and then another $185 million overseas. So that's a total, grand total of $370 million, which in today's dollars would be... 600 or 700 million dollars worldwide It's incredible But
0: I will say at the time and and in the years following I've always been baffled that it did get in As a Best Picture nominee It's always the Mm -hmm. one you bring up when people are asking Oh, do you think Star Trek's going to get in? Well, I don't know, The Fugitive got in You know, like it's always the one that's brought out to Back up people wanting a kind of a popular movie to get in but as you could see it got it got really good reviews from popular movie you know, well, you know mm-hmm. but
2: it's sort of like the french connection an action film that um oh got it wishes in. it wishes
6: it was the french <laughs> I connection oh, no no oh, i'm not God. saying that it's on the
2: same I'm not it's not on the same level as the french connection but it was i mean just think about the french connection for for 1971 i mean it was in a sense a crime action film it really was and, and a chase film, yeah. And a, and a chase film. Uh-huh. And the same thing... No is way, it's brilliant.
0: It's brilliant. Watch it again. Oh, The Fringe oh, Connection
2: is a brilliant film. I'm not taking away what? from it's brilliant. It is a brilliant film, but... And if you put it in its category, it's an action chase film, The French Connection.
0: It it's really it artsy, is. though. It's incredibly artsy. Yeah, it's you know. all handheld camera. They're following mm-hmm. um, uh, Gene Hackman around with his camera. The chase scenes are insane. I mean, right. it's, it's, yeah. it's weird. It's a weird
2: no, It's movie. one of my favorite films. It's a brilliant, brilliant film, but I'm just putting it in the category. that If you want to say um, The Fugitive is nowhere near The French Connection, but they are action chase films. Right, 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 Put them in, in that.
1: That's what I'm. And it's a thriller. You don't usually see a crime thriller nominated for best picture at all. But so in the, the rare ones that you do see, you can sort of you, you can sort of cluster them together just for that reason. Right. The, mm-hmm. the, the the fugitive and the French Connection and even Witness was the same sort of thing. You wouldn't right. have expected Witness. Uh, Which is a cop cop movie, really. It's about cops. It's about policemen chasing somebody, trying to find somebody.
0: Right, right. But even with with Friedkin and with Witness, Peter Weir, you had the prestige of the director. With Fugitive, you did not. You didn't have Mm -mm. the prestige. You just had a pure... Entertainment movie that was pretty good, but it is weird that Tommy Lee Jones won, although he was the most likable. And we were talking about, we didn't talk about this, we didn't talk about, because we haven't got to Schindler's List yet, but Mm -hmm. Ray Fiennes is such a much better performance in Schindler's List than Tommy Lee Jones in, in The Fugitive. But the Oscar voters don't vote for best acting ever they vote for the characters they like the most or the characters that move them the most and usually characters give or take one or two here or there are uplifting and they show the best side of humanity you know and Tommy Lee Jones mm-hmm. is the hero you know in the, in the right. first
2: well, well Ray Fiennes also played a a Nazi you know, I think Jew, Jewish Hollywood, I don't think they wanted to honor that performance where he played a Nazi killing Jews. Okay, you know, some you heard, you'd, rather, Spike Lee. you'd rather give an
1: Oscar to a, to, a cannibal, to a cannibal than to a Nazi. Right. I mean, <laughs>
2: Hollywood still has those, um, Hollywood is very um, sensitive. They're very sensitive. And they don't want to um, let the rest of the world know, oh, they just gave an Oscar to a guy who played a Nazi who killed Jews. You
3: exactly. know, maybe they, you they, they didn't
2: want to go there because they didn't want to get that from Germany or, or people like... From the Jews, they didn't want to hear that. So they, they wanted to play it safe and gave it to someone who they liked. So they gave it to Tommy Jones, who was good in the movie. He was good. You
1: know? And, and yeah. another thing, too, that probably was a drawback for, for Ray Fiennes is even though he did extraordinary things with that role, and it was based on, on, on totally on a real life character who really was like that, and all the horrific things you see him do really happened, the stereotype, cliche of, of, of a Nazi. Uh, evil Nazi German general had been around since 1945. They've been making so many movies like that that people have seen so many movies with that same character, who's like, you've got this evil, diabolical Nazi guy, and here's but another he's, one. But
0: he's really evil. He's evil mm-hmm. to the point, he's way beyond Hannibal Lecter, who basically right. mm-hmm. is nice and charming all through the movie. He bites off a guy's tongue, that's pretty horrible, but mm-hmm. he's not so bad. I mean, I, Schindler's list, Ray finds, is he beats up the maid, he kisses her, and then he says, no, I don't think I will kiss you. <laughs> you know, and he turns on her, and he beats her up, and he, he torments it's the poor people in the yard you know he like he he just shoots them randomly off the balcony and then he he accuses them of these i mean he is the worst of the worst i don't think i've ever seen a more evil nazi portrayed in a movie than than ray friends right. i can't think of one and it's he,
1: hard and, to go ahead michael
0: no i'm saying also
2: you know with his physical appearance he gained weight for that performance too you know he picked up he, he had like that pot belly. You know, he wait for that film. You know, he he put in so much effort for that film and and, and thus became my
0: and thus became my ultimate sexual fantasy realized.
4: <laughs> you a fat Nazi? <laughs> Dude, I've <laughs> never Nazi gone to see.
0: I always used to say the punchy Nazi. Ray Fines, was like, "It you No, know, you know, he's a good-looking
2: guy who, you
0: know. <laughs> when he lost his weight, he got he wasn't sexy anymore to me. That was it. That happened.
4: <laughs> I'm going to start a band called Punchy Nazis. <laughs>
0: No joke, though, really. <laughs> guys, watch him on YouTube and you see how cute he is. He's so good looking. Oh, sure. yeah. The weight in his face just made him so attractive. When he lost it all, he kind of looked like an English patient. Mm-hmm. He's too sort of. Gone. Yeah, gone, smallish. Yeah. Yeah. Like He, he looks uh, yeah. better to me with meat on his bones. That's just it. Mm-hmm. I mean, him mm-hmm. and Gene Ackman, they're the two guys in Hollywood that I just have always thought were the sexiest thing.
4: He what looks a, kind of decadent a, when he's heavier.
0: Yeah, that's it. Decadent. You got it.
4: <laughs> I need to back up one second i i, I don 't think you can you can fairly even use f- fugitive and uh, French connection in the same sentence i mean yes they there's there 's an action movie veneer to that and also to the wits as well but those other two movies are considered great because of what's going on underneath, and the problem with *The Fugitive* is that there is nothing going on underneath; it is just veneer. Definitely. So, yeah. I, I, I'm not comfortable comparing the, the three. You're of them right. Models.
1: You're right. You can't. *The uh, Fugitive* is only skin deep, and you, you can't go any I mean, deeper than just the just, just the thrill of it.
2: Far more superior.
0: Than yeah. And. Yeah, they're just, I know what you mean in terms of people say, like, a lot of readers always bring up French Connection and say, oh, that was just, but I think over the years after the French Connection, I think it got only because movies in the 70s were all so good that even their, like, you know, action blockbuster was a work of art. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I know. It's like The
4: Exorcist. I mean, it's not, it's a horror movie, but it's more than a horror movie.
0: Right, and mm. then flash forward and you get The Fugitive, which is pretty by the numbers. I mean, it's a good action movie. It had that wonderful train crash and, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of good characters. Julianne Moore had a bit part, but um, but it, it it's just what you see is what you get with that movie. And it doesn't That's even a, have that great of a plot, as it turns out. But
1: No, because do it's do like it's just think, a TV plot. Do
0: you, yeah. do you think The Fugitive
2: is remembered today? You think it is? No. See, mm-hmm. I, I don't think it is either. I don't think – I mean, the TV series – is a great it was a great series you know but the movie i don't think it is long lasting for me you know it's like it was a great action film when i first saw it
0: yeah i, love I mean, it. it's funny you know? how history works things out like at the time, you would have thought, oh, Philadelphia's not as good as The Fugitive. You would have maybe thought that, um, you know, Searching for Bobby Fischer wasn't that great, and The Fugitive was so good. But Mm. somehow, and and even Weird Orlando was in the Oscar race that year. Orlando, which I think only got a um, a, a nomination for, for costume, which it totally deserved. But You know, Age of Innocence didn't get a Best Picture nomination, but The Fugitive did. I mean, that that always reflects badly on a movie all these years later when you look back and you go, wow, well, these movies kind of resonated more over time and this one didn't so much, you know. So... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. However, one movie that has resonated over time is Steven Spielberg's Schindler's List. <laughs> How's that for a segue? That was,
6: that was smooth.
4: <laughs> that didn't feel jarring at all.
0: Well, we're gonna hit the two hour mark pretty soon, so we to get to it. <laughs> Poor Schindler's List, it's become the Cohen brothers all over again.
1: <laughs> we keep wanting to talk about it, but really there's so much to say about it. We could talk we could devote an entire podcast to just Schindler's List. Know. You know? And but what we end up doing is giving it ten minutes. Minutes at the end of the podcast when you're running out of time.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, and Shillers sure this one seven Oscars. Okay, bye. <laughs> no, but but really it is I mean, as I watch back through the clips to to play on this podcast and I look at some of those scenes and oh my god, it still is like a punch to the gut. And and I, I don't understand why at the time I thought that the end was so sappy and hammy and bad. When I watched it back and you have—it's um, a hard movie to watch, so it's not one of those that I watch over and over again because it's too intense. But he takes you right, right there. You're right there uh, during the Holocaust. It's like Twelve Years a Slave in that way. It's just mm. a, a hard slap in the face. It's that he doesn't—he does. It's unrelenting. Who stole the chicken. Hmm?
6: Tell him about a man the walks around with a
4: chicken, and nobody Save notices yourself. this. Save yourself tell him about the chicken
6: still nobody knows
2: It was you? You committed this crime. No, sir. But you know who, though? Yes. Who?
0: Him! But the end, when he says, I could have saved more, I should have saved more. At the time, I thought, oh, Spielberg, you blew it. But now, watching it back, I think, that is beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. That's so right about how he must have felt. Mm.
4: The thing about that scene is, that out of context, it seems too much but you have to realize that Spielberg is taking on an entire emotional journey with this movie and if he doesn't have that scene it's like a safety valve that allows you finally to let out your emotions over all these horrible things you've been watching for the last two hours and if you don't have that it just leaves you feeling punished and miserable and it's and you could argue that maybe a movie that makes you feel punished and miserable is exactly what a movie about the Holocaust needs to be, but that's also going to be a movie that nobody goes to see. You need to have some sort of uh, closure like that, otherwise it's it, no one's going to see it. Five people will see it, and and then what good is it?
5: whoever saves one life saves the world entire.
6: This gold. Two
3: more people. You would have given me two for at least one. You would have given me one. One more.
6: One more person. Person For this.
3: I could have got one more person.
6: Can I sit? i
1: and you've talked about uh, last time in, the, in the, the segment that got that we lost on Sunday night, Craig. You were talking about how the, the coda at the end of the movie, when they come forward to the current to the present day, and you see the descendants of the of the um, people that Schindler was able to save, that really brings it home in another way altogether. Because it's so hard to get your mind even around the idea of four million people. Um, murdered, slaughtered, and exterminated, basically. And and when you see that Schindler, you almost agree with Schindler, well, dude, out of 4 million people, you saved 400. So, you know, good job, but uh, it, it, we, it would have been great if you could have done more. But then when you see, go ahead, I, you, should, you should explain it, Craig, because you, you put it really well. Just
4: how, in the context of the millions and millions of people who were killed, he saved a relative handful of people and you can say, well, big deal. It's a handful of people who cares. But then when you see the scenes at the end where the real people who did survive are, are there, but they're also surrounded by their descendants. And you realize that it's it's like a, a drop in the water that spreads out and those people who lived had more people and it, and it expands and it becomes, it, it becomes, it's, a, it's still a relatively small thing and a huge tragedy, but it's, it, it's bigger than than what it first appears And that's the most moving part of the film for me Because you realize The real magnitude of what of what his actions
1: did just imagine in 1993 there were so many people there were a thousand people in line waiting to pay tribute to him think of the descendants of those people not only do you have the children and the grandchildren but now you have the great-grandchildren and the great -great great-grandchildren who are descendants so it's an exponential ripple that's gone out the people that he saved the handful of people he was able to save
4: eventually will amount to a million people Right. And this was one guy's actions who mm-hmm. himself felt hopeless about what he'd done. But imagine if there were a hundred other people just like him or more, mm-hmm. then you start to build a an even bigger case for it. It just reminds you in in the face of current tragedies that, that one person's actions can can make a huge difference.
0: Mm. It's really true. And um, <clears throat> you know, I remember at the time people thinking that you know, it was going to sweep the Oscars because it was nominated for 12. And only a handful of movies have ever been nominated for 12 and, and not won a significant amount. And it is really surreal when you think that Schindler's List only won seven. Seven, right, Michael? Not eight. Seven. Seven. Seven, seven of its 12. When a movie like Slumdog Millionaire has actually won more, The English Patient has won more. It, you know, it's just funny and ironic The way that we were saying last time Which, you know, of the other the, the podcast that got away That, like, they'll never cut Spielberg a break Even when he makes Schindler's List He still can't catch a break I mean, he gets, yes, he wins all the appropriate Oscars That, that you would expect the movie to win But nonetheless um,
1: It lost almost as many as it won It, it didn't lost. win a
0: single acting Oscar, did it? Exactly,
1: right So it didn't win for Liam Neeson or for Ray Fiennes. And And, uh
0: but well, we can give it to, I mean, Tom Hanks for Philadelphia was well-deserved, but Tommy Lee Jones in supporting, there's no excuse for that. I mean, no. other than the fact that they probably couldn't bring themselves to vote for Ray <laughs>
1: I No, but that's such a pitiful <laughs> reason, you know. It really is shameful to looking, looking back on it. I hope that the people who made that decision, can I, can I vote for the Nazi or not, realize what a mistake they made. And,
2: yeah. you know, See, has an actor ever won an Oscar playing a Nazi? I'm trying to think.
0: I don't think so.
1: Probably not. It's huh? a nice trivia question, though. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so one of the questions that we got uh, online, I believe, someone wanted to know because there was crit- there, there was criticism at the time, like there always will be for any Spielberg movie. People are going to carp about it for, for crazy reasons. People wanted to know um, about um, the, ha- the the criticism that it has received from Michael Haneke. That that he thought that it that it played it was too facile playing with a melodrama, melodrama. For instance, I think specifically he was talking about the scene where they lead them into the showers and everyone is terrified because they don't know what to expect in the showers, whether they're going to be gassed in the showers or not. And then it turns out it's just water. And my, my Michael Haneke he said that only an American audience would be so naive to fall for that. You know, but I, I, I think that that's a it was a lame criticism at the time. Craig, I right. forget what you said, but it was brilliant what you said about.
4: I don't remember what I said, but he, he uh, he's an anti-American. And it's like uh, Americans to me, they're like, it's like the drunken uncle in family. It's like you can talk shit about him if he's in your family. But when other people talk shit about him, then it pisses you off. And that's what Michael Haneke's doing. And it, it annoys me. And it's like... Right. To, to speak out like that against another film and another filmmaker is just utterly lacking in class And it's, it, I've struggled over the years with him he's made a handful of terrific films he's made a handful of garbage too and just his personality and his cynical world view really just gets on my nerves
0: Yeah, I I agree. And especially that particular criticism, because I think it's wrong. I think there was a time, and nobody knows for sure anyway what happened in those showers. They're only Mm -hmm. going by certain accounts, which differ. But there was a time, I've listened to a lot, as as a Holocaust obsessive, I've listened to a lot of firsthand accounts of people who were in those camps and the things that happened. And at some point, I mean, they weren't stupid. At some point, right. they p- picked up on what was going on.
1: People you know? go to take a shower, and they don't come back. And then you see right. the smoke coming out of the chimneys, and you put two and two together. And, and so smoke, even right. though they might not have, there might not have been a newsletter that went around telling people what to expect, word got was going around the camp that that might have been going on. So they certainly had good reason to be terrified, right?
0: Yeah, and they all, by, through the war, they all had these little tricks that they would pass on to their kids in order to help them survive. Different things that they could do to trick guards or... You know, sell this or that, or use this skill that they had. You know, and some of them got lucky, and they managed to survive by those little things that got passed down from generations and word of mouth. That's all they did was sleep in the in the in their you know barracks or whatever they were at night and talk to each other. They didn't have anything else they could do. You know, so word got around pretty quickly, and they had people on the inside, I think, who also would um, pass pass along information.
4: I think part of his problem is that he's sort of seeing Spielberg as taking this horrible thing and sort of turning it into a Hitchcockian suspense moment, which is which is therefore entertaining, and that somehow cheapens the Holocaust. And I, I suppose you can make that argument, but rather than making that argument, then why not make your own Holocaust movie your own way?
0: Right. Exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And. I mean, it's the thing about Spielberg is he is an entertainer, and he's a really good film director, and he knows how to entertain a crowd. And if you're watching a Spielberg movie, you're going to get those scenes, you know, here and there. They're they're going to be because he's he is like Hitchcock. And and by the way, that's a, that's not an insult. That's a compliment. Right. It
4: shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. Well, he's he's playing to a big audience, and you can. You can take that or you can leave it, but when you compare his big audience movies to the usual big audience movies, it just it's, it's snobbery to to be critical of that, I think. And he it's wasn't trying pointless to pointless snobbery.
0: Exactly. And he certainly wasn't trying to make a Michael Haneke movie and I, I I know Michael Haneke would never have included that scene in a movie he made, but they would have mm. made totally different movies.
1: And no, nobody would have gone to see the Michael Haneke movie, and Michael <laughs> Haneke wouldn't have won Best Director and Best Picture, because we saw what happened when he tried to make the kind of movie that he makes, and he made a more, and it didn't win anything. Or I guess he did win what? What did it win? screen It should have won <laughs>
0: Best Actress. <laughs>
1: it shouldn't, I know, really, but aside from that, <laughs> you know, it, 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 that he made that. That movie was pretty um, played on your emotions in a lot of ways, too, so I mean, he has no... No room to criticize Spielberg for playing on people's emotions,
2: right? You no, know, I just, I just had a thought, you guys. Um, Christopher Watts for Inglorious Bastards. Didn't he play a
0: Nazi?
4: Mm-hmm. Oh, you're
1: yes.
2: right. There, there you, go. you go. You
0: got it. Yeah,
4: Michael.
1: Okay.
0: Can't stump Michael. That's for sure. he played
4: a funny, likable Nazi. <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> but you got it though. He's you did. You, you found one. <laughs> I found one. <laughs> and Why? then, and then he won again for playing the same part. <laughs> <laughs> Well, they like him. The I guess like so. Jeez. Like but, you know, my whole thing
2: about Schindler's List is that I just – I remember watching um, – you ever see the movie, the 1959 version of um, The Diary of Anne Frank, that film? You know, I'm where sure. they were Shelley Winters and all that stuff. And that was more to me – it was like it wasn't as impacting to me than Schindler's List. I mean it was – because Hollywood didn't really dwell into the horrors of – um the Nazi occupations in that film like they did with Schindler's List, but whenever I think about Schindler's List, I think about what those people went through back then, when their homes were taken away from them, their um, their businesses, families were ripped apart. I mean, I had a roommate, Sasha, you remember Barry? Yeah. My roommate Barry's family was in Nazi um, camps. His, some of his family was in the the most famous one, um, Auschwitz. Yeah, he lost family members. He lost the majority of his family, my old roommate. And he never used to talk about it. His brother was in the concentration camps before he was born. He was born here in the States, but his brother was born during that period. Ugh. And I just can't, and, and I just remember that the horror of how it was and just like, how can there be people in this, in this world that are so evil and violent like that? You know, so and it only me, happened
0: in the 1940s, dude. That's the that's the freakiest thing about it to me. It's like the question that Max von Sydow answers in um, Hannah and Her Sisters. He's like, the question shouldn't be how could it happen. The question should be why doesn't it happen more often? You know, because it's just like God, we're awful people. You know. Anyway, mm. I'm sorry, did I interrupt you, Michael? Were you going to finish? No, it? no, no. It's just that human beings are
2: sometimes the worst animal on this planet. You know, we're mm. like the worst animal on this planet because we do more damage. Than anything else, and it's just like, how can we? Do, I mean, if you really get into the horrors of um, the Holocaust, it's more. I mean, he he touched on a small a small part of it, but it is far more severe and damaging. I mean, well, I think images. he I
0: think of any filmmaker, Spielberg has come the closest to really showing in a fiction in a in a live act you know non documentary film. What it was like, and by the way, I was just watching back through the scene where Ray finds beats up the maid, and you know you see something in that scene that you've never seen in a in a Spielberg movie—the kind of editing that goes on there, where it's intercut with um, with uh, Liam Neeson dancing with this woman. And it just cuts back and forth in the most beautiful way. I mean, it, I was just—I mm. was like, "Wow, Spielberg!" I mean, he was really showing up as a as a director and an artist. He wasn't just filming these scenes of horror. There was so much style to Schindler's List. It's such a, such a beautiful movie on top of everything else. You know,
1: I'm so glad you brought that up about the stylistic choices that he made because you know Spielberg usually there's the Spielberg point of view where you usually see the you're you're looking at the movie and the events of the movie through the eyes of one of the characters like like um, Richard Dryvis in Close Encounters or Elliot and E.T., and he doesn't do that in in Schindler's List. He has the, the third-person observer uh, point of view, and he also has... You, you really learn more about Schindler through Ben Kingpley's character than you do from Schindler's own... Point of view. You don't. You're not really seeing the movie through Schindler's eyes at all. You're seeing Schindler through Ben King through Ben Kingsley's eyes. So he does things with point of view in order to draw the draw the audiences in obliquely. I think that he's never done before in any other movie.
0: Yeah, I agree. And he, I think he deliberately did that. That was the thing about. Him and the Oscars, I thought was so interesting because people did accuse him of, oh, that's Oscar. You know, he's just trying to win his Oscar. Steven Spielberg wants an Oscar so bad. I don't know why they have to do that. Like, they've done that with David Fincher and a few other directors. Now, I guess, uh, David O. Russell, where it's sort of like they're so desperate to win an Oscar, they'll do anything. But he really did show up in, you know, the way that he filmed when he made Lincoln, he only came to the set in a suit, you know, because he Mm -hmm. really felt that it was an important subject and he had to be wearing a suit to film such an important subject. And you know, you get the feeling with Schindler's List that that you know he did everything within his power. He did not miss a, a beat on that. Like he showed and did everything to pay ultimate respect. I don't think to win an Oscar. You know, I think it was bigger than that for him. I'm oh, sure it had that's, to be. You
4: know, it's offensive when you're when you're dealing with a subject like that um, with that director. There's no way that you can say he only did it because he wanted to win an Oscar. He wanted to do that movie as a tribute to the people who died you know, to keep their story going that's why he started that the the Shoah Foundation where they recorded the experiences of, of all the people who were actually there it was because I, it just infuriates me that anybody would even think that, that they'd be so cynical that they'd think, oh, I'm just going to toss off this Holocaust movie because I want to win an Oscar.
0: Right. I, I want an Oscar so bad I'm going to make this movie, you know, Right. because
1: the Holocaust movies have been such a Oscar winning genre throughout Oscar history. Right. And nobody <laughs> has ever dared to make a Holocaust movie no. before. So it was so brave to do that. I mean, you would think such a such a milestone Tragic thing in, in human history that there would have been other movies about it, but it's really the only one ever.
0: And in fact, I had Michael he because he knows everything about the Oscars. We, we tried to figure out if there how many movies have been about Jewish people at all. Forget the Holocaust, Jewish people at all. Mm-hmm. There, there are some. Maybe the only. There are a handful of them. There, mm-hmm. you know, there's um um. Gentlemen's Agreement. Gentlemen's Agreement, which is about. Then
2: her, but, which is biblical, but it's about you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they that sort of. Go ahead. No, there's judgment at Nuremberg about the um, Nuremberg trials t- about the Holocaust, and that's about Jews. Um,
4: but it's more about the Nazis and what we did to huh. them than it is but, about the
1: Holocaust
0: yeah, it's it's themselves. They, exactly. they
4: skid past that. Right. All of, all of Woody Allen's movies have
1: the Jewish component to right. them. but it's, so it's not. Hall, it's, it's not a serious thing. The way yeah. would, Woody Allen treats the Jewish experience is not anything at all to do with the the, the uh, tragedy that the Jewish people have gone through. Right. But maybe the closest movie that, that I can think of would maybe be Cabaret. That it touched on a little bit about the what was going on in pre World Best War II picture. Germany.
0: Yeah, it didn't win, mm, um, but yeah. Cheers of Fire did, and that did have a that did have a little bit of a Jewish ca- theme going on, didn't it?
1: Mm-hmm, for sure, yeah. yeah exactly. There was a Jewish right. character uh, He had to uh, overcome prejudice and everything. And,
0: um, and thing is about Cabaret is
2: that even though it was a film about the Jewish, uh, a little bit about the Jewish uh, experience going on, but it also um, won more Oscars than she List*. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow,
1: really? And really, really, the, 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 <laughs> many, the main Jewish character in *Cabaret*, anyway, is just Marissa Berenson's character, right? Nobody right. else, and nobody else in the movie.
4: Really well, but, to the, but thematically, it, it's mm-hmm. dealing with the outsider like that, and it, mm-hmm. I mean, it ties in obviously religion with the with the Jews, but also sexuality and everything else. But it, it's mm-hmm. such, that's a huge undercurrent of that film, even if it doesn't even if it doesn't always explicitly hit that beat. It's still it's it's still huge. And the other thing to
0: remember about that year, I'm sorry to change the subject briefly, which is that in a lot of ways Spielberg was also competing against himself because he had another movie in the Oscar race. He had Jurassic Park and that Mm -hmm. beat um, Schindler's List for sound, Mm -hmm. uh, which that's one that in a sweep Schindler's List would have won sound also. And, And it didn't because it went to another Spielberg movie. And it might have won were it not for Jurassic Park in the way. It also lost costumes to Age of Innocence in a very competitive year because the piano's costumes are unbelievable, and Orlando's costumes, oh, my God. And Schindler's List and Age of Innocence are incredible. They're beautiful. So that was a deserved Oscar. Um, Really, it falls short in the acting categories, and the only really strong contender that could have beat, was, I guess, was uh,
1: Tommy Lee Johnson. Yeah, so... We can't overlook what what twin pinnacles Jurassic Park and Schindler's List were and to be so polar opposite type of movies. But Jurassic Park was enormously influential at the time too because it was the first time that people realized that CGI computer graphics could be used for something other than spaceships, that you could actually create a living, breathing character with CGI that could be believable and that people would believe that you you were seeing something that was a living thing instead of a computer-generated thing. Was that
2: the first CGI film?
1: no it wasn't the the first cgi not by any means but it was the oh. first that most other cgi movies up until then i think used cgi for spaceships and things right. that were like background and backdrops and stuff like that but, um. Um, but-
0: so Spielberg had the number one movie at the box office that year and he had the best picture winner of that year and, and Schindler's mm. list was number four it's that's, amazing to me that, that he pulled that off i don 't know if any di- other director has ever been able to pull that off
4: well in the f- 30s and 40s it was more common because directors worked more quickly that they would have you know they would come out with films a lot quicker but in the current era that's unheard of for a director to even make more than one movie a year let alone to Movies that are both great within their own uh, uh, completely opposite types. I mean, you've you've got the socially conscious drama in in Schindler's List, but then you have a popcorn entertainment. And as a popcorn entertainment, Jurassic Park is fantastic. And yeah. he did it again, you know, a few years later when he did Munich and War of the Worlds in the same year. I, nobody thinks of either of those movies as highly as the two previous ones, but I think they are worthy and. It's just amazing to me that he, can, that he can shift gears like that so quickly and so smoothly and, and deliver so well on both counts.
0: Absolutely. I
2: think, I think the only director, I think, to have two hit films was um, Francis Ford Coppola. Because I remember in 1974, he had not only The Godfather Part Two but he also had The Conversation.
0: There you go. Yeah. Right. And
2: they both got nominated for Best Picture.
0: Right, they and both And
2: one,
1: did. one was a blockbuster, and one was more artsy.
0: Yeah, except for it's artsy. weird yeah. to have the number one movie and the best picture winner Ed, that weren't the same. That they were different. Right. Right. Spielberg, I think he holds that. Um, so we're at the two-hour mark. I think we've given a good run for uh, Schindler's List. I did want to play two things. I wanted to talk briefly about In the Line of Fire, just so that I can play the John Malkovich clip, which is like one of the funniest huh. scenes ever, and he's so great in it. And just to, to sum up with In the Line of Fire, we don't really have time to go into it, but. It's a really good, funny, solid thriller with Clint Eastwood um, playing a Secret Service guy. But the the reason to watch it, the only reason to watch it, is John Malkovich's John Malkovich's performance. So that's all I want to say about that. But um, I should also play that our our listeners' voice message. Remember that got left off too. Yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah. do that again. <laughs> so let's see if I can find that so we can play it for. Um, And and all of our listeners are are invited to tune in. We put the number on our podcast uh, preview that we do, which we did this year. But I'll say it again. It's 323-963-4160. And here's our message from Orlando, Florida. Oops. Hang on. I have to switch browsers. I forgot it doesn't play on Safari, but... Did anybody else want to say anything about it In the Line of Fire or is it just me? <laughs> um
1: I, I would like to say that aside from the John Mikovich's performance, which was incredible and it reminds me a lot of Dennis Hopper in Speed in the in the just over the top eccentric villain that you just that is more entertaining really than the hero of the movie. Um it's directed was that directed by Paul Verhoeven?
4: Wolfgang Peterson. The,
1: Wolfgang Peterson, right. Uh. Yeah, how could I forget? And we talked about that, about yeah, how Wolfgang <laughs> Peterson is no slouch. Wolfgang <laughs> Peterson is no slouch in the directing de- department because we we went on and on about Das Boot and the different...
0: We did. You have to just take our word for it. We did. We yeah, talked right.
1: about- <laughs> it. was great. It was great. Remember
0: that? Remember we talked about that? <laughs> we did. Remember you guys said how great Das Boot was? <laughs> das we had a whole, whole
4: separate podcast on Das Boot. <laughs> That's <laughs> Booth. <laughs> oh God! Except Annika okay. would not like it because it's too entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> it
2: cheapens World War II.
0: <laughs> I definitely need
2: to see that film again. I definitely have to do that.
0: Which does put
2: that's cool i have to see
0: it again okay so here is our our friend calling from florida our one and only phone call which <laughs> we have to play because somebody actually called us so no you should say is.
4: there were hundreds of phone calls oh, yeah. and we narrowed <laughs> it down just to this one because it's so freaking awesome <laughs> okay here we go hey guys dan from
0: orlando here just a quick tie from
6: 1993 to this year 1993, Age of Innocence was delayed by an entire year. It was supposed to be released in the fall of 92 and then was released in the fall of 93, and now we're seeing that Martin Scorsese's film of this year, Wolf of Wall Street, is delayed. Just a question, if you ever think that it's never been an idea for a film to be delayed and if it hasn't benefited the film, I think I'll, any uh, an Oscar for casting perhaps might hurt the film, but otherwise, artistically, I think it's always a good idea. Great podcast, guys. Keep up the good work.
0: What a nice guy! We like Dan from Orlando. You do. Thank you, and Dan. And what a great question! Yeah, it's a great question, and we did answer it last podcast. That got <laughs> but I don't know. I remember what we said. I do. I remember actually because we said we said two things. You guys were in agreement before we get to the casting Oscar. Um, we'll just say that does delaying a film help it? Well, and I think Craig was the one who said that. A lot of times they delay movies that aren't going to really do well in the Oscar race anyway. Like Shutter Island is probably as good as it was. It wasn't going to be, you know, wasn't going to have Oscar play. So it could be the studios thinking this isn't going to have Oscar play. On the other hand, The Hurt Locker was also famously delayed and it it won Best Picture. So, you know.
4: It it wasn't actually delayed though. It it kind of, Hurt Locker more had to build up critical steam before it could actually be released to the public i think and that was, so, so it was a little bit different of a situation i mean it it, it came out in toronto the previous year and then right, it came it was out seen at already. The, yeah it, it 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 seemed like it it had been delayed because film independent sort of jumped the gun because nobody was paying enough attention to it and and gave it awards for the spirit awards but it wasn't really up until then a, a, a part of the public consciousness, whereas a movie like Shutter Island is a movie that exists and everybody's anticipating it. And it's got this, this juicy Oscar spot. And then suddenly it's moved to basically a movie burial ground, which is, you know, February or March of the following year. So, so then all of the bloggy blogger types, this is just grist for the mill and they just use it to pile on and they just assume that the movie's going to be terrible. And it's, it's it sort of a self-fulfilling uh, prophecy, but I don't know that that was necessarily. The, it was a different environment when, when uh, what you might call it, uh, uh, the age of innocence. Age of innocence was delayed. There wasn't, you know, maybe Variety would report on it, but there wasn't this feeding frenzy, and. and I'm hmm. see what you're saying how many people outside the industry would have even
1: been aware that the age of innocence had been held back and it was delayed you know so it didn 't right. affect the the audience perception at all, and it may have not even affected critical perception that much because it, it, everyone wasn 't so wired into all that
4: right
0: right they weren 't wired in they weren 't invested i mean I think that a lot of people are invested in um, Leonardo DiCaprio finally winning an Oscar. Also, it looks like a great movie, I mean, from the trailer. And so I think that a lot of people are very, very disappointed that it's not coming. It's kind of like waiting for your entree and having to sort of settle for your appetizers. And,
1: and who knows? Because the last I heard, is they keep vacillating about it, but the last I heard, there was a Paramount rep, I think, who said, it all depends on Marty. If Marty, if Martin Scorsese can get the editing done, can get it trimmed down to the length that he that he wants it to be, then... Uh, then they'll release it uh, around Christmas. But it is all it depends on him. And I think he has a film festival he needs to attend in the beginning, the first week of December, last week of November, first week of December. So he's going to be pressed for time with that.
0: Right, a, apparently the, a, the money people want to be released before the end of the year. But
1: mm-hmm. I
0: don't think, I don't know, but I'm guessing that they're not gunning for Oscar here. You know, and when he made The Departed, they weren't either, by the way. They just, uh, Departed came out, what was it? October, I think, the year that it won, and uh, nobody thought it was going to be an Oscar movie. But I always knew at the time, not to brag, but that it, all Scorsese had to do was hit a, you know, hit it out into the into the ball into the audience or whatever. He just had to hit a home run, and he could he would mm-hmm. win the Oscar, and he did. He totally won it because he was so overdue to win by then. So, it should the be Capriol said too that Shutter film? Island
4: did just fine without any Oscar consideration. It was, I think, at the time his most successful his most uh, successful film uh, at the box office, wasn't it? Made biggest opener, million, I think. Right? I believe it was the biggest right. opening weekend for sure. Yeah,
2: I didn't think that movie did that well, Shutter Island, for some reason. Mm. It did though.
4: It it came out at a time when there was nothing else out there for adults, and so it, it 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 didn't do huge numbers each week, but it did consistently good numbers for an unusually long period of time. Keep talking.
2: Hi. Yeah, hi.
0: We can end this now, you guys, if you want.
4: Let's just end it now. <laughs> Shoot me in the face. <laughs> Let's end this charade.
0: You know but wait, I, I do. <laughs> okay, <fine. laughs> but I do yeah. want to say that Shutter Island made 128 million here.
2: Not too shabby.
0: Yeah, it made 128 million. I also-
2: I've never, I've never seen that film. I,
0: because you know, I, I'm not a completely,
2: complete fan of um, Leonardo DiCaprio. He has disappointed me.
0: Ugh. sacrilege! <laughs> no. no, but he has. I mean,
2: I just that I just I find him sometimes. Um, I some of his characters I just don't believe him as the character. I just don't. I always see the another He doesn't. I don't escape with him. as So the you're character. a big fan I of Jay always... Edgar then? Oh? <laughs> Jay Edgar. <laughs> That's your favorite movie? Oh, Jay Edgar Hoover was was like it was agonizing to watch that.
0: <laughs> well, I like I like DiCaprio paired with Scorsese. That totally works for me every time. Well,
2: it worked with um, De Niro and Scorsese. It works perfectly. But I don't know. I just, I'm not a Leonardo DiCaprio hater. He just doesn't do it for me as an actor. Just
1: well, we're bigger fans of The Aviator probably than you are, Michael, because I really thought The Aviator got shafted that year because a Million Dollar Baby came out of the blue and swooped in and, and shocked everybody by by what it was and by how, 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 what an impact it had, how it just like hit you with like a brick in the face, basically. (laughs) And, and, and every, up until then, everyone thought the aviator was going to sweep. At least I did
2: back then. Well, everybody loves Clint Eastwood.
0: Well, and I remember Million Dollar Baby because people are talking about that now with, um, with George Clooney's Monuments Men, like Chris Tapley and, and, uh, you know, are just, I'm, and we're both sort of convinced that he's holding it back from the Oscar bloggers because he's trying to punk the whole scene, because he hates the Oscar scene so much, he hates doing it every year he's smart enough to step outside the circle and watch what's going down, and somehow this movie has just been taken totally out of it out of that, and it's coming around the other way and so I said to Chris, I was like, well, um you know." That doesn't happen anymore It hasn't happened in a long time It would be really funny But it would be breaking history Making history and, and he said no It happened with Million Dollar Baby And I said yeah it did But with Million Dollar Baby That was right around the time When they changed the date And everything sort of changed After Oscar changed the date To move the Oscars back a month
1: mm-hmm.
0: And also Um
1: didn't didn't uh, Million Dollar Baby uh, have a premiere at the Directors Guild or something in in late October and then it didn't even uh, go into theaters so that audiences could see them could see it until January or it was still in, in theaters in February and it had only been out for a couple of weeks. Well, people were not. Like I memory. mean,
0: I wasn't. I was I was doing my site by then, but I don't because I was always was way in the tank for Aviator and I thought for sure it was going to win, but at the time before Million Dollar Baby came along, but um, but I don't. It's not like it is now, because now, since they moved the date, everything happens. Best Pictures almost decided before most of these movies even open. And it's not decided by audiences. It's decided by industry voters and critics and bloggers and all those people that do it all before it ever even hits theaters, which is backwards of how it's always been, right? right. Because there's just no time, because voting starts in December, and all the movies have to be screened, and screeners have to be sent out, and they don't have anything to go on except reviews and buzz. And how much they like the movie And he's like saying, oh no, voters will always just pick the movie they like They don't listen to the noise And I said, well that's not true Because Hurt Locker never would have won If they were just picking the movie they liked That had a lot to do with how people were talking about it And writing about it I remember the first person who ever said to me that Million Dollar Baby was going to win Best Picture was David Poland but what I don't remember is what the sequence of events was. I seem to recall it was right around Toronto that it was seen but I have to do some research to find out if that's the case I have to find out when it opened if that's true and if, if Monuments Man is going to follow in, in I
1: concept. I have an impression that I read someplace place that, that there was a sneak preview at the Directors Guild and that's where most of the Hollywood insiders first got wind of it and then it kind of then they held it back, and so the word just got, got around about this rumor about this great Clint Eastwood film that only a handful of people had seen, and but I believe it was at a, at a Guild screening, and I believe it was the Directors Guild, and then we'll have to. Uh...
0: And Ryan but and, and I. it did
2: go on made... to make a lot of money, though I think
0: it did. But oh, we were both yeah. Ryan and I were heartbroken that year.
1: Uh, I know, it was terrible, because for <laughs> one thing, I thought, even though I really liked Million Dollar Baby, like an hour after I saw it, because it hit you so hard emotionally, I started, the, the more I thought about it afterwards, the more I felt manipulated by it, and I felt kind of jerked around, and I felt like, you know, that it was brutal and, and unnecessarily masochistic almost, sadistic in a way, to make you fall in love with this, this kid, and then, and then, and then uh, wreck her, wreck her life. It just yeah. uh, seemed unnecessary to me.
0: But I remember when it happened, and it was—it did become inevitable. They said, "Oh, it's going to win," and of course, it did. It won everything. I even remember Barbara Streisand announcing Clint Eastwood winning, and I was so sad for Scorsese. This is before you know, before um, Departed. This is before this is this is coming off of Scorsese losing to. Robert Redford for Ordinary People, then losing to Kevin Costner for Dances with Wolves, and now losing to a third actor turned director, Clint Eastwood, for The Aviator. Hmm. I mean, for Million Dollar Baby. So it was like, whoa, yep. come on. I <laughs>
3: you know.
0: So, but, I, okay, so you're saying it happened in October. I wonder if there's any way we can find out exactly when. <laughs>
1: Surely there is. I, I will do the research, but I know that I, at one time, at one time I looked this up and found it someplace. I don't know how I found it, but I can find it again. I'm sure. We'll ask okay. around. Somebody on Twitter must know too.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And so, that, to answer the question, do we answer the question? That, that do we think that it's going to hurt um, um, Wolf of Wall Street next year if it does turn out that it's released next year? I really don't think so. I think if it's a strong enough movie that it that it can last all year, I especially it- if. Or, go go ahead. ahead. No, go ahead. I, I was—if they can somehow hold on to it until the, the Cannes Film Festival, that would be really brilliant. If they can—if they can hold back and not release it in, in in February or something, but if they can wait until May to release it, then it will just have—it'll just be like a fresh thing all over again.
0: Oh, and they love both Scorsese and Leo in Cannes, so. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so. That's possible. Yes. Yeah, so thank you, Dan, in Orlando, for that. Was it the casting question too? Casting Oscar. Does anybody mm. think that should happen? No. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> In the <No>. <laughs> That's the
0: answer. I, I sort of thought that it was it went along with the performance capture kind of thing. Like people actors and direct, you know, people always kind of give credit to the director for the casting, like, oh isn't it great that he got Michelle Pfeiffer for that part? People Mm -hmm. don't often consider the casting director, and I think that there should be maybe an Oscar that goes on the other Oscars, the, you know, the, you know, those Oscars nobody watches. (laughs) Whatever they are. The scientific, technical.
2: Actually, the Academy, um, I think every year when the Academy Awards come out, they always, there are a lot of awards that, um, they go in and they decide if this is appropriate for the Academy Awards. And I believe there has been, um, a vote for a casting award but they nixed it they did because they kind of felt that the casting is kind of close to best picture but i believe um, that
0: i'm not,
1: maybe i, I may, mean, be, wrong, I may not.
0: be wrong but i'm sure I the
1: that casting that. directors themselves might probably have their own little group that they probably already give an award to, uh, to the, what they feel is the best casting choice, the best casting director of the year. And another thing that we shouldn't forget, I think it was just last year, or was it, in, was it just this summer, that the new branch of the Academy, casting directors now have their own branch. So when we heard that happening, we thought that that might be a precursor to introducing a new category, because when you give the casting directors their own branch in the Academy, that had never happened before until this year or last year.
2: Well, maybe right? if they do do the casting thing, maybe they'll do it like, like they do the um, now with the um, – um when they give the honorary Oscars, they give it uh, separate from the actual show.
1: Uh-huh. Let's not confuse the fact that we're not talking about the best cast. We're not talking about a, a best ensemble award. We're talking about the person who is in charge of – of casting the movie the person who finds the faces of the actors to fit the roles in the script that's an individual person who who's that's a job that people have so we're not talking about a, a sag ensemble award we're talking about but a isn't casting that like
0: role.
2: a body of people sometimes that does that also not just one person
0: i tell you who should i tell you who should give out a casting award and that's sag sag should do that they should have a that's, best casting
1: good good idea yeah that makes sense that makes a lot of sense
0: Not the academy won't do it. I think the academy should. Except they would
4: just pick their favorite movie, like they do with ensemble. Uh
0: That's right. (laughs) They would. Um, Yeah, I think if the academy was going to do anything, this is what I've been, you know, requesting for years. It'll never happen. But I think they should have a best effects-driven picture, best picture that's effects-driven, and then they could open it up to all the shit Hollywood's doing now. That's my and I like
1: that because some because not because even though there's a lot of shit, there's two or three movies every year that are effects driven that are that are spectacular
0: and that would like, never get in for best picture but but right. and they so they don't get recognized at all and then there would be some that were crossover like inception and you know it would get into best picture and best effects and it would probably win mm-hmm. effects driven but it wouldn't win best picture
4: like I'm, I'm not totally William. comfortable with that category because there's so so many effects now that you don't even notice like if you look at a movie like Zodiac it's a totally effects driven picture everything in that practically is a special effect yeah. but it's not a sci-fi spaceship's flying around with dinosaurs kind of movie so it would it would not get it it, it wouldn't fit in that category even though it is a sterling example of special effects can i just you know say saying? though
1: that i really want to see the movie with the dinosaurs flying around in spaceships uh, don't they come out with all those every year? No, I want to see the dinosaurs and spaceships.
0: <laughs> that would be so cool. Jurassic Park on a spaceship. Oh, my God. A huge T-Rex running around on a spaceship. Maybe,
2: maybe that's going to be Jurassic Park 4. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I would love that. All right, you Jurassic guys. Jurassic
4: Space Station. <laughs> <laughs>
0: We must. It's been fun, but this is it. I mean, we've really outstayed our welcome here at two hours and fourteen minutes. <laughs> so.
4: Another brutal editing job for you to do
0: on top of the one you already did. I'm going to have to sit down and do it right now. I'm not going to. Assuming cut
4: this
1: thing got recorded, we hope this is. Ha ha, ha ha ha
0: ha 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 <laughs>
1: ha!
0: I will definitely be very careful this time. <laughs> I promise. <laughs> all uh, right. This
1: was great. I'm glad we did this because, in fact, I thought we were a little bit pressed for time Sunday night because the thing was, we all wanted to, to, to break and watch Breaking Bad, right? That's why we were in such right. a, a hurry to hurry up. And I felt like that we were giving some of the movies short shrift, and now we didn't have to do that. Now we we're able to be um, uh, expanded. I'm pretty, pretty sure I'm going
2: to get a lot of people who's going to hate me because um, I said I didn't like Leonardo DiCaprio that much. Oh, well. Sure.
1: Don't worry. We'll, def- we'll defend you.
0: You've been listening to episode 46 of Oscar Podcast with Ryan Adams and Sasha Stone from AwardsDaily.com and Craig Kennedy from LivingInCinema.com and special guest Michael Gray. Our bumper music today was Streets of Philadelphia by Bruce Springsteen, and we closed with Sullivan Street uh, from The Cannon Crow's August and Everything After, which came out in 1993. You can follow us on Twitter at Oscar Podcast, and we will be back next week with another episode. Thanks for listening.